Welcome to It Can Be Said. My name is Will Cording, and as we wait for the American election results to come in, we have a stat show for you and an all-star lineup. Joining me as always is Dr. Luke Midup. How are you today, Luke? I'm very well. Well, uh, we'll turn the cameras on, listeners, so I can actually see Will in all his technical glory. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have not blurred, listeners can't see this, Luke, I have not blurred my background. That is just how white the wall is in my flat. So. <laughs> Um, it, does look, it does look rather saintly. It looks like you're about to perform a miracle. <laughs> well, trying to keep us to 90 minutes when we have so many guests, maybe that's <laughs> miracle. We also have our, usual, our other usual host, Simon Alvey. How are you, Simon? Um, I'm beginning to recover from basically having had no sleep on Tuesday. <laughs> we're, we're, we're heading back in that direction due to the liberal application of coffee. Literally, when I started to feel human yesterday and I felt I could bear to put CNN on, I then got a power cut and was with no electricity <laughs> for two hours. And I thought, yeah, well, that's a sign. Just go to bed, Will. <laughs> There's nothing good to be done today. We are also joined by two of the most erudite and political of pro wrestling podcast hosts. Uh, first of all, we have Jamie Houdahan, who, for those who are listening to Grapple Spotlight on Monday, sorry, Tuesday even, was actually giving American elections updates in between saying how Vince McMahon is a bad, bad person. How are you, JP? I'm all right. I feel like the position of where we are, I feel like I'm finally allowed to possibly relax in the next few hours. I'm taking absolutely nothing for granted, though. But I will say, watching CNN while trying to talk about Ring of Honor and uh, their pure tournament, whilst looking at vote totals and percentages in Florida going either way, just going, please, God, let him win, and it's, then this all ends tonight. But, yeah, feel like we're coming out on the other side now. Thank God. So now, now you're, watching, you're watching politics whilst uh, talking about wrestling. Mm-hmm. Are you watching wrestling now? I mean, our brand, NXT UK, is on as we speak. It is. I've got a three-pronged attack going on. Rich will especially appreciate this. So I've got CNN on my tablet. I've also got BT Sport on, keeping an eye on Arsenal versus Mulder in the Europa League. Whilst I have you four fine gentlemen on on the line in front of me on my laptop, so it's uh, I'm probably going to be all over the place, but I'll somehow try and keep on top. And finally, as uh, JP alluded to, we have an actual American on the line. We have Rich Fan of Pro Wrestling Torch. How are you, Rich? I'm good. Much like JP, I have on my television uh, Arsenal Mulder. And so if we are in some point, maybe he explains or exclaims something a few moments before I see it. Thanks to the uh, Atlantic here technology. Uh, but yeah, I have my Twitter up. Uh, I'm looking forward to this because uh, I'm usually the opposite situation. You know, having Will uh, kind of walking me through the UK political scene. So having four of you gentlemen kind of like talking to me through my own is going to be fun. Um, funny enough, just on the football, Luke, is your football team in the Europa League? No, Will. No. One no. day, but not yet. Not yet. <laughs> For those who don't know, Luke supports Knox County. Hey, we do get to actually play some football this weekend after having our entire squad pretty much out with COVID for the last fortnight. Uh, So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, let's get cracking then. So, yes. So, let's let's give a rundown to start with. Um, We are recording this just after quarter past eight UK time. 
Everybody's basically in agreement. Joe Biden has got 253 electoral college votes. Additionally, Associated Press and Fox News have called Arizona's 11 electoral college votes for former vice president. That counts continuing. Trump is cutting into Biden's lead. So maybe that isn't actually a, a state that should have been called so early. But it does look like that's going to go blue for the first time since 1948. Counting also continues. Another key swing states of Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina, having not yet been called by any news outlet. However, all of them, it only really feels like North Carolina is expected to go towards the president when all the votes are cast or counted even. Um, if Biden does win those outstanding states, he will have 306 electoral college votes. To put that in perspective, that's more than Trump got in 2016, and it's more than what George W. Bush got in 2000 or in 2004. So, Simon, all that ends well, eh? Well, um, look, the key, the key thing and the key conclusion of this election, presuming that everything you said, and I am literally touching the wood of my desk as, as we start to record this, is that it looks extremely likely that the worst president of American history. And my goodness, the family of James Buchanan must be the only people alive to be happy about the uh, fact of the Trump presidency, mustn't they? Um, is going to end. That on the 20th of January, 2021, Joe Biden will most likely become the 45th person to hold the office of president of the United States. Yes, I'm a nerd. I know Grover Cleveland gets two numbers. Oh. But... I actually reference him later in the show in my script. So, yeah, that is impressive. <laughs> um, but, no, it looks like Trump's going to be out. It looks like we got Biden-Harris tickets in. But reality is that the result is about as much a result for nothing much happening for two years uh, as you could possibly imagine because it was not the wave election that many people said it would it had a decent chance of being actually um if 306 is the final vote total um that is basically what i predicted it would be um i you know I, i'm never ma massively optimistic but i certainly thought he'd win but he's they've not taken the senate they've gone backwards in terms of the house of representatives um mitch mcconnell is still going to have the position he always has of being a sort of unattractive turtle-like creature sitting limply on top of the, the US democratic system, not allowing anything much to happen. Um, so as much as Donald Trump is not going to be president anymore, hopefully, the, as much as we can all, you know, go to sleep quietly at night and not worry about what the hell the leader of the free world is actually going to tweet and whether and how many people that's going to kill... The question there probably isn't going to be the opportunity to do some of the more some of the things we think we might have hoped the Democratic Party might have been able to do, i.e., actually make any genuine constitutional changes, um, consider statehood for DC or Puerto Rico. Uh, in the latter case, uh, they actually had a referendum that said, you know, we want statehood, which one I believe fifty two forty eight because that <laughs> ratio just never goes away. Um, that ratio will never die, um, but. Yeah, with the Senate, I mean, they picked up Colorado, which means that um, Mark Kelly joins John Glenn and Jack Swigert as men who've been into space and men who've been elected to the House, to the United States Congress. Um, but other than that, they've not done particularly well. Susan Collins was returned in Maine. It looks like the seat in North Carolina is staying Republican. 
you know that that not, nothing very impressive. So I think we're about to watch two years of not a great deal happening. Well, we'll come back to that later in terms of the implications for uh, the future governance of America. But let's talk more the more important thing about our feelings on elections night. I mean, Rich, as you saw the results come in and it not looking like even worse than it looks now for all the reasons Simon says, it's, it's uh, you know, it's uh, still an island with a cloud attached, but it looked much worse at points on Tuesday, didn't it? Yeah, but I, I got to tell you, as the American and the only uh, black American in the group right now, I have a markedly different view of this. Uh, I think that when I went to bed on uh, election night, I was actually good because this has been the game plan of the GOP going into the election season. You look at my state currently of Pennsylvania, where uh, back in September, there was a measure passed that would have allowed the voting uh, that occurred by mail to have been counted. But the GOP and the state legislature also wanted to have a drop dead date of mid-September for those uh, mailings to go out and be returned for them to count during election night. That was obviously rebu rebuked by the, the House and the governor. And so now we're sitting and counting all these mail. And the same person that brought that bill to the floor is on Twitter talking about uh, how the Democrats have rigged the election for them to get these late, quote unquote, votes. And so you look at that, and that's the microcosm of the United States right now. I think when I went to bed, I was, I was particularly uh, not too worried about uh, Pennsylvania because I knew the city centers were going to kind of push Democratic, I, especially with Biden and his, uh, I, I don't use this as pejorative, but his folksy centrism was something that was going to play well being a child of Scranton. Uh, some of the other states, particularly, uh, in, and this is the story of the Democratic Party writ large, not understanding, uh, you talk, you're, we're, at some point, I'm sure we'll talk about Latin America and the mistakes of Co co coalescing 15 to 20 different uh, groups, ethnicities, histories into one block that could be a monolith. Only the black vote here in the United States is particularly a monolith. And that's because it's been particularly disenfranchised how we made sure the Electoral College, for instance, built primarily for slaveholders to maintain their, their strength. And so those sorts of things you had to keep track of. So I was kind of cool. Florida is Florida. I let that go. Um, but <laughs> What, what really surprised me when I got up was I did not see the growth that occurred in Nevada, the growth that occurred in Arizona, though Arizona, I would argue, and we can get into that later, is a direct repeat on the GOP side of what Clinton did in Michigan and Wisconsin in 2016 in terms of Trump avoiding that state, mainly because of spite and that biting him in the butt because he didn't make any visits. He didn't want to talk to Sandy McCain. He in no way wanted to make himself a presence in that state after John McCain died. So that is kind of the penalty you pay for that. Uh, but yeah, so I went to bed and I was particularly, my wife on the other hand, who was an elections officer here in the States, uh, was up until about 4 a.m. Uh, watching with bated breath and then finally staggered to bed only to say, you know, nothing's happened. <laughs> <I'm with that. laughs> well, I, I found, I think, um, I don't know if you agree with this, JP, but I found that watching CNN was making me worse because CNN would have Florida and then Texas, then Ohio, then Texas, and they'd be showing you like, oh, it's looking good for Democrats. It's close. It's close. And it's like, oh, no, load of Republicans have, just, have we've just counted load of Republican votes. The Democrats are nowhere near. And you're just like, oh, my God, they're going to throw it away again. And so I think about 3 o'clock UK time, 
um, to be about, I suppose, 10 o'clock Eastern time. I just took myself to bed for two hours and watched it when you could actually get to the Great Lakes, the actual swing votes. How did you find uh, watching everything, JP? Oh, no, he may have left in oh, anger. Uh, JP, how did, how did you find watching everything? I found, as he just jumps back onto the call, trying to sound all seamless about it, I, it was a ner- it was nerve wracking because I was also recording a podcast while it was going on, so I was kind of I couldn't listen to anything. So all I had was John King and then occasionally Steve Kornacki playing with a map. Those were the things that I was kind of seeing, and because you had the issues where in Florida they were able to count the early votes, so you had, um, you know, you had. Florida going one way, but you had the opposite pattern happening in Pennsylvania, and you have the competing ideas of you're keeping an eye on the Rust Belt and on the Sun Belt at the same time, and you've got these two, and then you've got the various kind of state rules and the way that this election's played out. It's like, sorry to go to wrestling in this way, it feels like I've just watched a tournament, and I don't know, Simon and Luke, if this means anything to, to, to you two guys, it feels like watching a version of the G1 Climax that's got incredible stakes and the booking has just gone slightly haywire this year and you're not really expecting it. So all yeah. the kind of preconceived narratives that we all had about the election, it was seeing some of those things bursting. I thought you were going to go, go with the uh, Road to Victory Road tournament that uh, TNA did <laughs> with all the different rules, rules and uh, wacky, wacky booking. Um, uh, what did uh, you make of it watching that? Well, you were watching at home, Luke, were you? You took yourself to bed because... No, well, no, because I... With my job, I couldn't. I, there was no, there was no way I could book the Thursday as leave, um, and I was like, I had to work like fairly early. I had to work like fairly. Sorry, Wednesday, so I couldn't book Wednesday morning as leave. So I had to work fairly early. So I thought, I'm not going to start watching it because if I start watching it, I'm not going to stop. And then when I get to work, I'm just going to be no use to anybody. But I might as well have watched it because I didn't actually go. I didn't really go. I didn't really go to sleep Tuesday night. I was just doom scrolling on my phone for several hours. Um, talking about um, talking about John King and Steve Kornacki. Can the BBC like loan them for the next general election? Because yes. John King is awesome. Like Michael Johnson when they bring him over to do BBC Olympics coverage, yeah. and you just think that's incredible that he's there. It's <laughs> like. They're fantastic. I mean, I'm not actually sure that Steve. I'm not actually sure they're human because no one should be able to be on TV for that many consecutive hours without like falling down. It's ridiculous. I'm less sure John King is that good. I think he like like JP was saying. I think he just plays with maps because like the Florida thing was really annoying because he kept talking about how Florida was uh, close. When it's 50-50 with the panhandle still to end, no, close, close, close election, close voting. So it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's what, 48, 48 now. But the minute the panhandle, the very conservative southern part of Florida closes their ballots, Trump's going to get an extra two points, which is what happened. And I think, and I think with Ohio and Texas, he was bad at actually saying, yes, this is the percentage now, but actually you're going to get more Republican votes declared later. Um, but the maps are cool. I like the maps. Um, yeah, what, well, just, just compare that with Jeremy Vine and his virtual house comments. Okay, the maps are lovely. I'm just not sure John King knows much about other than here is the current breakdown of the vote. Here is what this precinct got in 2016. Um, 
which uh, which channel? Hang on. You... Well, there was oh. just one of there was just one of the point oh. I wanted to make, which is to talking to Simon's point about the Senate. It's not quite all over in the Senate, Simon, because it mm. does look like there's going to be a. Du- I don't think the I don't think the political world has quite cottoned on to the fact there's going to be a double runoff in Georgia. That is going to be like that's. I mean, the amount the amount of pack money that is about to descend on Georgia is going to be unholy. If you are a registered voter in Georgia, I would just like take the next two months off because those runoffs will be held notionally on january the 5th and it's just gonna be hellish oh yeah. oh that's magnificent because uh, one of the reasons it went to a runoff is in the final debates uh the democratic candidate point blank said on your watch you allowed COVID to kill your residents like he went there and it just completely undercut uh his opponent and now as you see like you said you just mentioned they're under the 50 percent threshold and so it's now a double runoff or, you know, I'm in full Zoolander mode. I need uh, Billy Zane to show up and slam a table and say it's a walk-off. Uh, it, it's it's amazing because it's going to put them in a stressful position of, by you might have a month and a half of, yes, we don't, we, we have control of the, 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 the Senate. It's great. And then, oh, crap. Uh, so that, that, that really bears watching. And I'm sure you might have me back in January to see what oh, happens. Absolutely. I, I think mean, if anyone's listening to this that's not doing anything at the moment, and you're American, go move to Georgia for uh, for <laughs> a couple of months. You know, you can as long as you move by the seventh uh, of December, you can register, you can vote. Um, um, I think what's re- one of the things that I um, someone was saying earlier, um, annoyingly, I can't remember who I was saying all this on Twitter, but actually, assuming and we are, I think that uh, Trump is about to lose um, this election. It's probably quite an interesting indication of his future plans, what happens in Georgia, because I think if he genuinely does want to be the Republican nominee in 2024, God help us all, you will probably see him campaigning down there, you know, doing get, doing a big MAGA rally with, his ter- with the terrible hats. But if he basically goes, well, you know, how much grifting can one man do? I can just go away and retire and play golf and not get paid for it by the American people they get anymore. Uh, I would assume that you will, uh, he will be stuck in Mar-a-Lago between now and, well, until he dies. I think the thing as well is it's like whether, because I think Trump would like to have the crowds, even if, he's, if he, even if he's not planning to win in 2024, it's whether the people would still come. But this is probably, a well, it's not actually that close an election, but it feels like a close election that I don't think he'd get laughed out of town in, say, the way George W. Bush was, and he basically became a non-person after 2008. Which, just to go back to you, how did it feel watching the elections in America? Like, what, what network do you tend to use when you're watching them? Uh, again, I'm the weirdo in my family. My uh, wife and my uh, son watched uh, CNN. I usually follow uh, either AP, I try to keep a run-in stream going on my laptop of uh, the how the races are going by local reporters, because I learned from my time working at the State Department, if you want information, you want the local reporters, you don't necessarily need the national reporters. Uh, and then I would pop on to a little bit of the MSNBC robot posing as a human just to watch how awesome he is at his job. Uh, so I, I, that's how I did things. Uh, but then I, I, in the, in the days since 
it's been a lot easier to just leave CNN on when my wife's working here. And, as, you know, as she's listening, because she'll have it on all day. Uh, and since my son's here, I'll try to, like, I don't want him sh- stressing and watching this stuff as it's happening, too, because that's a lot for an eight-year-old. So we'll, we'll try to kind of, like, have it in the background or off. But that's how I watched it. I, I try to stick to streams and or a couple of local folks in each of the key races I, I was keeping track of just to kind of keep my sanity. Because I, I don't like the way that they say, you know, breaking news. We will find out at 11 o'clock some news that you might. You know, that, that I don't need that sort of high, low roller coaster situation in my life. Yeah, I found that. And it was really annoying because obviously every American election, the swing states are different. And I don't have your knowledge of the, like, the local media markets. So you're, you're kind of scrubbly like, who can tell me what's going on in Pennsylvania without yourself, Rich? And it's yeah. like you're just trying to find which are like the local reporters in Pennsylvania that have people at the key counts. Um, um, like there's that guy in Vegas. I can never remember his name. Oh, John, John, Ra- John Ralston. That's the guy. So I've, I've followed him for ages because like he is like the guru of Vegas. But like I wish every other state could just have like a clearly agreed elections guru I could follow. It would make my life easier, which is the main thing at, at the end of the day. Before we move on to the next segment, I want to go just go around um, the horn and ask this. Assuming that you do accept that Joe Biden is going to uh, win, when did you become convinced of that fact? And we'll start with you, Luke. Um, well, I was obviously um, somewhat of an advantage to you guys because I, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it during Tuesday night. So I woke up Wednesday morning and went like, I actually called you like first thing Wednesday morning. And went, oh shit, this is going to be Florida 2000 on steroids. You know, there's going to be there's going to be legal challenges all over the place. Then you go on 538, um, Bing, and um, you know, look, actually plugged in the figures, and it's like. Yeah, when you look at where votes have got to come from, I'm not. I wasn't very convinced. Sorry, Rich, that he was going to win Pennsylvania, but I thought, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada looked pretty good. So, yeah, at that moment, I was kind of confident. I'm still not. I'm still sort of worried. Not that Trump will actually win, but that he will drag this process out. Um, and make the transition very difficult by just filing nonsense lawsuit after nonsense lawsuit. Well, we'll get on to Trump's behaviour in the next segment, um, but let's go. just keep going around in terms of when people... So you're seeing around about 9 o'clock UK time. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rich, when Wednesday did you... Wednesday morning, yeah. Wednesday morning. Rich, when were you uh, pre- no, convinced Biden was going to win? I think when I saw that uh, the way that it started to happen in Detroit when they started counting the Detroit because that was going to be an indicator of all the other cities that had been in similar situations Pennsylvania among them where you had a grossly uh, oversized demographic of Democrats that voted by mail and a larger Republican base that voted in person and you could see the shift because uh, you know Bernie Sanders mentioned it I saw it last week tonight with uh, uh, how did I forget your countryman's name right now John John Oliver out of my head thank you gents uh and he he everyone had been talking about this this was going to be the plan you get to midnight maybe 1 2 a.m tuesday and the declaration is stop we're good nobody needs to see anything else 
And then you look and you come in on Wednesday morning and all of a sudden the numbers start to change. And so once Michigan went, that kind of started that process. And then Wisconsin and, you know, we, like you said, with Arizona, actually, to be honest, to, to be honest in this moment, now that I'm thinking about it, it was when Fox News called Arizona and no one else still has. That, that, that was a level. Uh, yeah, AP now. Yeah. But they were the first to call it and then step away. And Trump called them overnight and said, hey, Murdoch, what are you doing? He's like, no, I stand by what they said. And that was, to me, a uh, watershed moment that kind of said, yeah, this is the math is mathing, as one of my friends uh, is in the States. And just now it's just waiting and letting it happen. Yeah, until, I mean, they were always weird and biased. But like back when I was conservative in the noughties, I used to watch a lot of Fox News. And even after, even after like I kind of, Move to the left. I still watch a lot of Fox News until they went really um, out of kilter for their elections coverage, because like they do have like the best decision team, decision desk in the business. Like it's like it's this is a genuinely un- impartial, unbiased part of the Fox News operation, and if it's I really can, weird. If I can just ask, because I'm confused by this, what what information do AP and Fox? think they've got and no one else has got so i can't remember the exact details but basically ap and fox (coughs) use the same results service and so because basically obviously you're you're there's no there isn't like one central source of information about the american elections the networks have to pay for somebody to collate this from state no not just state but county uh level sources uh priesthood level sources even and so the, the other networks use one source. Fox AP went with a different source, which is why they have both called Arizona and the others haven't. And there were rumors that maybe Fox and Arizona were misled about how few mail ballots were still left to receive. But basically, it's I've got a different results service. That's the only difference in their uh, numbers. Um, uh, JP, when did uh, you uh, feel um, Biden was likely to become the next president? It felt it's sort of similar to Rich in the sense of when you could see the pattern developing in Michigan and, and and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and you could just see the tide of where that where that was turning. And at that point, it became clear that the catch up was there, just because the mail in was um, outperforming what was the 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 same day vote in those states and the percentages that were there. So that, you know, the math was working out. So I think at that point that, and I still, even to this point, keeping an eye on it now, like there is the fear that that Luke mentioned about the courts and, and dragging it out and where it goes. But there's a lovely inevitability feeling about this. And I think at the point of when you could see the pattern and you could see what was going on and at that point then it felt like florida and texas and the feelings about those were kind of going kind of out of view and it really kind of demonstrated the the biden strategy of ultimately concentrating on the rust belt primarily that was the that was the one it was kind of you know stuck to that rigidly and it looks like it's paid off and then finally simon when the when were you convinced uh um, going to be the next president convinced isn't i mean convinced i think not until I sort of, not until I was sort of thinking about it, having breakfast, uh, probably about eleven o'clock yesterday morning, because uh, I did the thing of going to bed about half four and waking up at about nine. Um, 
But I was weirdly, I was just going through a Discord I was involved in on election night. And I can tell you at 3.59 in the morning, uh, I, 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 I sent a message to that Discord group saying, I'm having the deeply unusual experience of being the hopeful person in one conversation. I, I was having a, com a Zoom conversation with some people who were making the always entertainingly um, profound error of uh, for concentrating entirely on the betting odds uh, in uh, um, going like, and going like, oh, the, the betting odds are going away from us in Pennsylvania. It's clearly all over. And it was like, look, here's the situation. Let me calm you down. This, you know, this is actually what's happening. You're just, you know, you're being shaky. You're being nervy. And also you're trusting gamblers. Um, and so I think by that point, weirdly, I've been really quite negative and quite depressed and got on that call about half three. And then as I was sort of talking to people who were more doom laden than I was, I found myself talking myself into like, oh, but you see, the thing is, you have to understand he's got to do this and this, whereas Trump's got to do that and that and that. And it's not going to work. And so actually, I think I probably was early. I think I thought Trump Biden was going to win by four o'clock in the morning, yeah. UK time. See, I was asleep at that point. I was getting annoyed that the how CNN was talking about Texas and Ohio. So I woke up at five-ish. It was around about five in the morning, UK time. Saw Trump's kind of... I, well, first of all, I saw that the New York Times needle had been corrected because they were they were using data in a weird way, and that they were now predicting Georgia would go to the Democrats. So, like, proving that the blue shift would actually work, and that you know the theory that as mail votes come in, you know, a red leaning area would go Democrat. Um, and then you saw Trump's opening remarks, and he just seemed so downcast and beaten. I thought, yeah, Biden's got this. This is looking good. Um, and I, oh, and actually, it should be said, before before Trump, you also had Biden's remarks, and Biden seemed very confident as well. So, yeah, so I think about that four, five o'clock in the morning period was when I thought it as well. But let's move on to our next se uh, section, because we've mentioned him a lot, Donald Trump. So as his uh, grip on the White House slackens by the hour, uh, Pres uh, President Donald Trump has reacted with his usual combination of uh, caution and class. In the aforementioned rambling address in the early hours of Wednesday morning, he bemoaned um, the fact that late counted votes were denying him the chance to hold a big celebration party he had planned, denounced the challenger's new momentum as being caused by electoral uh, fraud, and to me, half-heartedly claimed victory. Um, he's since then he's primarily kept his comments to his Twitter feed, you know, demanding counts be stopped, continued, or restarted, depending on the situation that would benefit him. Um, so, Rich, um, how do you think uh, your president is handling his uh, imminent defeat? In the manner in which I thought he would, uh, I think, short of ripping the copper out of the White House on the way out. He was going to be a bad actor. Uh, you're not going to see. I know people go on Twitter, and I know we probably have that for one of the topics for later. But we're not going to see uh, any sort of capitulation on this on the level of George Bush in terms of handing over to Clinton and just kind of being graceful in the exit. I think it's going to be kicking it, or even Obama handing over to him. Uh, he's going to go kicking and screaming. He's going to scuff up the furniture. You know, just everything he can to just be an absolute. Uh, ineffective leader. Uh, I don't cuss typically. Donald Trump is one of the few people in the world that make me cuss liberally. And since I've been on podcast with Will, he could know, like, I, I haven't. In, in the two years I've done them with him, I haven't for anything rest related. 
uh, when he got elected, I, I cursed more in that like three day period than I had in years. So I, th- I think he's going to just he's not going to be very good with this. And I think you see it also with what he's saying to people in terms of intimidating the people who just 60 year old grandmas who want to count votes because that's their part and contribute into the American machine. They want to help out in the process. They're volunteers. They're also duly elected Democrat and Republican officials on site. But no, have people with guns outside to intimidate. Ask for the names of the people counting votes so they can throw it on Twitter and uh, basically, you know, uh, open, uh, you know, uh, out them. And it, that sort of stuff to me is is just you don't need that. And I don't care about the becoming or the presidential stuff, especially with him. I, I just want it to be safe for the folks that are making those decisions. And the the, the more uh, whiny he gets, the dangerous, more dangerous it gets for people in that field. Yeah, I think I don't know about you. It, it just it's felt to me like there's a bit of cosplay involved. So like I think the the the, the most classic example of this was the scenes in Arizona last night, where you have people protesting at a count where Trump's behind. Mm-hmm. Like, needs those votes counted, but it feels like they've all got recounts. They know that when they did that thing to stop Al Gore winning Florida, they protested the counting of votes. So let's do that, and that will work. And it, I mean, what Trump is doing is disgraceful. I feel reassured it's so inept. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think, JP? I completely agree with you on that. There's a kind of real, you know, to quote Donald Trump, low energy feel to some of this. Well, But obviously the stakes are kind of raised, but it doesn't feel like it has that kind of Brooks Brother impact of people kind of barricading the doors and it all turns out that they're various Republican uh, staffers and interns who are are doing that. It's difficult because I think when it comes to Trump with me and about what his behaviour is going to be from here, like it it seems inevitable it's he's a he's an agent of chaos and there's a kind of burn down the house kind of like attitude to everything and you can just see that coming into effect because it's it, it's all the deficiencies of him him as a human being there are things that make me wonder like what happens in those last few days up to an inauguration because this is where i probably wonder if i'm getting conspiratorial and wondering if the southern district of new york investigation has got any real kind of teeth to it and he hasn't got someone like william barr for example who I have to say, is kind of been quite noticeable by his silence throughout a lot of this. And maybe we're getting to that stage, but it doesn't feel like if they're going to try ultimately to take these legal actions up to the Supreme Court, you've got people saying stop the count and you've got other people saying, you know, keep on counting. It, it, it becomes like like what exactly is, is the case and what's the evidence. So it's almost like when they appear in court, what exactly are they going to be producing as evidence here? Um so I wonder what's going to happen in, in the, the run up in the meantime, because I don't see any defence from the Republicans, because there's a part of me feels like Mitch McConnell has almost got like a perfect situation out of this. Out of everybody involved in this, he keeps the Senate. He gets to put a kind of block on things. They potentially lose the baggage of Trump and they get someone who can play Trump but just with a kind of more shiny face in that time. Now, I don't not predicting Tom Cotton 2024 to kind of run through because they they wouldn't have that kind of innate charisma. But there was a lot of kind of talk and think pieces if you kind of exist watching sort of predominantly sort of liberal news sources 
about the kind of collapse of the Republican Party. And that's not happened. That That's not happened in the slightest. That, that re the Republican Party is there, which in some ways for Democrats, because there would have been a temptation if there'd been something close to a landslide of foot off the gas. Um, and it would have allowed the likes of a kind of Tea Party style movement that would have evolved from this to kind of come in and then in the midterms take back potentially the House and effectively kind of, you know, make Biden even more ineffectual as it kind of feels like it would be. I say all this with the two, what will probably be the two most expensive Senate races of all time happening in one state. Um, so, and, and what's going to change on there? But I don't see any cover happening from the Republicans. I can't see any of the legal action reaching the Supreme Court, which I think is his Hail Mary pass for that, for that coming in as well. I think if we're going to go kind of fantasy on this, mm -hmm. like there's a part of me that, wonders whether or not he'd be asked he would end up trying to ask i don't know mike pence to pardon him before anything necessarily happens but these are state state things he's going to be charged on as well in new york so he can't escape these and it makes you think well what other options really does he have well rich has been pointing at me to bring him in rich you want to say something quickly oh. No, I was pointing to JP because Arsenal scored a goal, and then I agreed with his point. <laughs> it was serendipity. Uh, I, oh, it was just wonderful because one of the things uh, before I got into education, I worked in the State Department in Russia, and I focused on counterterrorism and organized crime. Uh, and so one of the things we always focused on is when you have an organized crime case, you have to break it up into as many small pieces as possible. Because when you have an actor as slippery as someone like Donald Trump or, say, an oligarch in Russia, there are going to be numerous exit valves. And if you can maximize the number of times they have to hit those valves, it becomes clearer they're using them. And so he could. I am worried. I am with JP on that. Uh, he could try to get Pence to pardon them. <coughs> State uh, charges. They've done a remarkable job to the point where Barr had to remove some of those lawyers in that office of parsing them out amongst the boroughs and amongst the attorneys so that they can hit them in a bevy of areas, including him and his children. And so that is where I wonder, especially in the, in the closing days, does he say F it and move to a place without extradition and just say, okay, be, be done with them and be, make himself out to be the bloated version of Julian Assange that he, you know, sees himself as, or does he just, dare them to bring him back to the States. I, I really am interested to see how that goes. Um, well, I mean, he'd almost be like um, Idi Amin uh, living at the end of his days in Saudi Arabia. You know, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be something like that. Um, Luke, as our IR scholar, you were very worried about legal challenges running into the uh, the election. Um, well, it. I mean, it's... I... I agree with JP that that I think that's I think that's I think that's they're, they're not very likely to get anywhere because there's not a coherent theory of the case. If Trump was behind everywhere and asking for votes to be counted everywhere, that would be one thing. If he was ahead everywhere and asking for votes to be stopped counting, I'm sure there are judges that could figure out ways of invalidating ballots if they wanted to. The problem for Trump is. He's got to ask for different things in different places, which looks utterly ridiculous. It's far harder to execute legally. And the fact is, um, Trump just doesn't have the Trump just doesn't have the Rolodex or the loyalty that um, George W. Bush was able to call on. 
so there was a very funny story in this morning's well, on the New York Times website this morning about Jared Kushner looking for a James Baker-like figure to lead the legal effort. And it's just like, who would that be? You've spent six years setting the establishment of the Republican Party on fire, and now you're turning around asking them to save you. So it's very Rorschach. Well, um, so instead of James Baker, you've got Rudy Giuliani and his crack team of lawyers Bouncing into Philly, um, in in sort of answers in sort of answers to Rich Rich's point, we we talked about this on our last podcast. Well, the transition is going to be really ugly, um, because it really does take both the outcoming at the outgoing and incoming administrations to work together, and Trump has done no pl- the Trump administration has done no planning. For this, other than what, the, other than the very basics that they're legally required to do, the one thing I would say is, if I'm President-elect Biden, the appointments I'm making first are not Secretary of State or National Security Advisor or DNI. The first appointment I'm making is Attorney General designate, and I am getting a landing team in the Justice Department the instant. Um, the, you know, as soon as I possibly can, because, and I have to say this as a non-American, the thing that really worries me is the shady deals he's going to be cutting with the likes of Erdogan and Putin and MBS and MBZ in this last 10 weeks, where there really are no institutional guardrails up that could stop him at this point. And I actually, I actually got quite sort of impassioned about this. There can't like the the Obama administration. I think rightly at the end of the day, didn't go after a lot of the the CIA um, counter terror stuff that it could have done at the end of the Bush administration. But I don't think the Biden administration could afford to do that. I think a Biden Justice Department has to get to the bottom of what Donald Trump has done, and in particular the international ramifications of this, because. Leaders that Trump has cut side deals with, they will assume, unless they're told otherwise, that those side deals still apply, or at least that there might be some payoff to them in the future. Or at the very least, they can hold them over the new Biden administration as blackmail material. Or Trump. Or I mean, Trump. No, you can get Trump. So they need. There absolutely needs to be an investigation to get to the bottom particularly of the relationship between Trump and Putin, Trump and Erdogan. Um, I'm going to, as um, Simon was talking about being optimistic earlier, but I'm going to give you a, uh, a, a difficult question to answer, not one that's not uh, pleasant to think about. Does Donald Trump run in 2024? Does he try and keep himself the leader of the Republican Party moving forward? Um, so actually, I'm going to, yes. No, I don't think he does. Because what I think we've seen really since sort of Wisconsin was called is that the Republican Party has always treated this man as he is, as a tool. Um, They he it was absolutely it's been absolutely clear in the behavior of Mitch McConnell, in the behavior of most of the sort of establishment Republican Party, that they don't want to be getting themselves involved with his kind of mad 
schemes to get um, Republican votes through and, and to try and get the ballots recounted in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Georgia or wherever. You know, other than the White House, which does have the feeling of the bunker in downfall at this point, um, except sadly he probably won't shoot himself in the head. Um, like, the, the the there is no one else. And I just think that any run he might put together, it's not going to be treated as naively. The, um, the early months, the early year probably of that, run for Trump to the White House in 2016. You know, famously, the media treated it for a long time as an entertainment story. But also, I think the Republican Party didn't quite realise the extent to which it was, you know, something that was rotten in the state of Denmark. And so he may try and run in 2024. But I simply think there's going to be a lot of people who simply spent their time trying... Sorry, was that my ke- was that my kettle? <laughs> I'm really sorry, Simon. Many of I was listening as well. I just had the headphones on, but I'll stick to water. Sorry, um, I, I know how important cups of tea are. I don't want well, to deny that, Simon. And then we'll take a break because my Sainsbury's order is just coming. So right, sure uh, yeah. Let me, take let, me just, let me let me let me just finish. Yeah. So I just I just think that I think he will be dissuaded from doing it. I also think that. I don't necessarily think he will want to run, but I think the Republicans are going to put all the barriers up they can to making him run because I think, and I, because I think they just, they are, they're tired of this nonsense as much as anyone else is. Excellent. We'll take, if we take a moment, we'll just take a five minute break so I can let my Sainsbury's order in and JP can get his uh, cup of tea. Thank you. That was amazing. That was almost amazing timing, JP, because I was literally, I literally reached my. So sorry, Sainsbury's. Um, I was like, it's like my headphones, and uh, it's making like static. Um, well, I'm I'm gradually making the the switch from excess coffee to excess tea. Well, now that I've picked up my Sainsbury's order and JP's got a cup of tea, we can we can conclude our uh, section on Donald Trump. We just heard Simon um, explain why he is. Uh, we we are dubious whether Donald Trump uh, will uh, win again in 2024. But do we think Donald? Just, just very quick, Anderson, everybody. Do we think that Donald Trump will actually face criminal charges, or will the Democrats either wuss out or be forced to wuss out by the fact that they're confronting a Senate, a a very conservative-dominated judiciary? Uh, start with you, Luke. Well, I mean, I think Rich, I think Rich, um, you know, made the point really well that this is not going to the you've got to draw a distinction between the possibility of Trump being indicted for state crimes in New York, possibly in New York federal crimes. So, I mean, even if the, even if the, even if the new Biden led justice department didn't feel that it had a case or didn't feel that it was going to want to pursue one, doesn't mean the SDN, doesn't mean the SDNY ones. Did I? Yes. You think he will face criminal prosecution? Well, who, I mean, who knows? 
Who knows anything? There's an absolute prediction. My overall feeling is we haven't even we haven't even scratched the surface of all the shady shit that Trump and uh, Trump and his family have got up to in the last four years. So yeah, I think he probably will, and I'm more confidently I think Ger- I think Jared Kushner will because there's all kinds of nonsense about the the his property holdings in New York. Well, actually, yeah, Luke made a point. Point Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. Uh, what do you think, JP? Uh, in terms of... Um, will they be possible? Will he, will he face criminal charges? It's... Okay, there's that part of me that thinks a Democrat's going to do what they would do, which is strike some... I wondered if one of his bargaining chips was that if he was losing and he was going to throw it to the courts, there was a kind of deal that they would put in place where effectively make, make this kind of go away, even though it would be state charges and the like. And... He is so shady that it, nothing surprises you. It's, but then this is someone who's never faced any culpability throughout his entire life. And, you know, I'm a cynic. And there's that part of me that thinks that he won't be in the States for him to actually face any of these charges. I think he is going to go down the route of possibly ending up in the Gulf, which I know, again, sounds conspiratorial. So will he face them? They'll be there for him, but I can't see him being around in order to face them. Are you saying we might have Donald Trump, you know, in residence? In, mm-hmm. uh, this is rehab. the conspiratorial part of my brain that goes on. Yeah. And it's it, like what Rich said earlier on. It's, it's like, what, what would a criminal and a crime family do? Where would, they, where would they go to? Where are the kind of escape routes out? You know, you could um, be, but are you saying, JP, that you might have Donald Trump, you know, residing in Jeddah, the guest host of the next WWE Saudi Arabia pay-per-view? Well, he'd be living the dream then, wouldn't he? As well, <laughs> and boxing matches. So, uh, you know, he's, he's got everything for him, isn't it? Uh, Simon, do you think we'll see uh, Donald Trump face criminal charges? I think if we do, it's going to be at the state level. I think that the one of the things that Luke sort of talked talks about in terms of the Department of Justice and, and making sure that uh, we start clearing the muck out quite quickly. It, it just indicates to me yet more reasons why the Biden administration is going to be one that may be one of the least effective, at least in, in like actually pushing its own agenda that we've ever seen, because it's going to have to do all of this stuff. And in that case, I think they aren't going to want to try and focus on prosecuting Biden. But yes, I also think that if a prosecutor from New York, which seems the likeliest place, turned up and said, we've got these crimes that you committed in that state, they're not going to say no. So I think there are going to be, I think it's going to just be one of those weird backbeats, probably to the, quite possibly the entire Biden administration. And in many ways, I think the Biden administration will probably try and keep quiet about it. Uh, What do you think, Rich? I think he will face charges. I think he will seek uh, either asylum or whatever he calls it as he tries to escape extradition. And I think that uh, the biggest issue for him is going to be if it's at the state level playing the uh, my favorite game when it came to investigating criminals. And a lot of prosecutors always talk about it. First person on the bus gets the best seat when it comes to making deals. And when you have no longer the arm of the Department of Justice at your beck and call, the more you have people involved around you getting arrested, including family members like your son-in-law, the more likely it is you're probably going to skip town and leave your daughter and him 
and built it on their own. Yeah, I mean, just, just my final thoughts. I think it's a difficult one. I think a lot, a lot of what he does over the next, you know, two just over two months will be telling. I mean, you have to remember that obviously he just have to he retains the power of pardon until he leaves office. So a lot of those people he can just start pardoning indiscriminately. I do wonder whether, given that this was so close, given that he retains his base, to use the, the New York Times cliche, whether he'll try and just set himself up as that leader of the opposition and try and almost dare the Democrats say, you know, how dare you bring charges against me? I'm your particular opponent. That's not how a democracy works. And I think that may work. Because I, I take the point about state crimes, but I think in reality... The Democrats in New York, the Democrats in Florida, the Democrats in New Jersey, which I think will be the, the three areas most likely to have standing to bring cases against him. I think Virginia as well, although I think a lot of those cases got taken by the feds. Um, they're not going to bring charges, charges against Trump without checking it with the with the, either the federal Justice Department or the National Democratic Party. And I think I could just see them saying, no, let's be magnanimous. Let's, like, I think other people have said, we've got enough on our plate. Let's just leave, let sleeping dogs lie, which I think would be a mistake. And I think more and more as we see the issues of American uh, conservatism and governance, we see that uh, actually the Nixon pardon was a bad idea. And it's just created this culture of impunity within the, uh, within the uh, Republican Party that leaks see civil servants who work with them. But let's move on, because a big big story of the election... Hang on, Will. Can I, sorry, Will. Can I, can I just come in there? Yeah. I've just got a Twitter on in the background, and the Washington Post is saying that Biden's going to be making a statement in a few minutes. Oh. Just so I, will, I will keep one eye on Twitter to see what he's saying. Just we'll... to add to the breaking news atmosphere, and because we have an, uh, a scholar of... Um, the military political relationship um there are a variety of rumors going around that the defense secretary is about to resign as well well there were rumors trump wanted to fire him but apparently he's prepared a letter of resignation and is preparing to hand it in publish it whatever you have to do shit what shit what's trump what's trump what has trump asked him to do oh Basically, that's the reaction I was hoping to get by asking that, because you see, I go, so various people on Twitter are going, that's bad. But, you know, to be fair, you find enough people on Twitter, they'll find anything to be bad. So I wanted someone with some actual expertise to answer the question of how much I should be worried. No, I mean, the, the rumour was that if that if Trump won, he was going to fire Mark, he was going to fire Mark Esper, he was going to fire Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI as well. Um... Well, we will follow the story. I mean, do you, do, do um, as however, you know, um, I am our expert. Do you have any thoughts, Rich? Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the biggest issues that came up, and again, the one thing we have to remember when we talk about anything in this presidency, and I think uh, all of you have done some great points, but I, as the guy, American on the ground, a lot of it is pettiness. A lot of the things that have really tripped Trump up with any of these people has been the pettiness not coming through, and with Esper. It was the fact that he wouldn't countenance uh, out and out rejecting changing some of the Confederate names of the bases. And so now he's jumping before he gets pushed. And it's it's even worse because he has uh, one of the uh, points he just made a moment ago about uh, Biden 
the one other thing you want to keep in mind is Trump put up put out an executive order that removed traditional protections for civil servants. And so in my uh, old position, the one thing I enjoyed about it was I could sit down and talk with like a 30 year Republican or a 40 year Democrat and see how the State Department has changed over that time in different countries with different appointments, as opposed to just an, a political appointee that really doesn't know they're they're you know I'm thinking of Steve Austin you know wristwatch from a wrist lock but uh, so with this you're getting rid of Esper and you're trying to get rid of the rank and file uh, folks in civil service that to me seems like on the way out he wants to tear as much down or do as much to almost like Wisconsin curtail the power of the president on the way out for the next person that he possibly could do with the assistance of the GOP. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, this is the executive order that's about reclassifying um, a great tranche of the American civil service as political appointees, which um, I, I didn't have a chance to look into this in detail when the, the order was made, as I will, Trump won't win. Um, but would that make them Senate confirmable, or would they be political appointees that he can appoint without Senate permission? Or would you need the Senate to say, yes, that political appointee can go into that department? I'll say yes and no, because the way he's done his appointees, as you guys, I'm sure, are well aware, he's been doing acting folks. So that way he could get around having to get them confirmed. And so the, what he would do is is essentially do what he's done in a lot of these departments when he had the acting person in charge, which is fire the people there and then not replace them. Well, this is my thing. Is I'm just thinking about it for Biden. If, yeah. if these are changed political appointees that therefore need Senate approval... That means the GOP's ability to basically hamstring who Biden appoints to key roles mm-hmm. goes much deeper down because obviously the thing with due to the um, oh what's it called the uh, Executive Vacancy Act well I can't remember Vacancy and Executive Branch Act whether it, whether the exact title is you have to have somebody who has been Senate confirmed or is a civil servant to move into an acting capacity. So, yeah, that, that's something to watch this space for. But yeah. we'll, we'll move into breaking news as we get it. But let's let's continue because one of the big stories we had during the night was the change in demographics for both parties' coalition. Now, it has to be said, and I saw many people making this mistake, we can't really use exit poll data at the moment um, because the way American exit polls work is they – you know, they, they get the various demographics they need, but then they, they kind of align them with the results to make sure that the, that the demographic mix is right. You also have the issue of, though, that particularly this year when there's, there's less in-person voting, you, you can't know for certain that you know, the African-American, the white working class, the woman, you know, whatever, you're, whatever demographic you're talking about, is actually representative of everybody from that group who has voted. But what we can say, based on the precinct level data from the voting returns, is that Joe Biden has badly underperformed with Hispanics in the South, particularly in Southern Texas and Florida. We mentioned it before, JP. We heard you giving updates on Grapple Spotlight um, mm. about Florida. I mean, what do you think uh, was the issue uh, behind? Trump doing surprisingly well with some key uh, Latin communities in America? I think it came down to 
a campaign weirdly as a, as a camp as much of a mess of a, as a, of a campaign as it was it appeared to be micro targeted very particularly well amongst particular hispanic groups so for example like rich mentioned it earlier on that the african-american vote feels much more like a monolith and there's there's various things i, I mean for me the african-american vote is like the lifeblood of the america of the democratic party at the moment um, particularly when it comes to organising and outreach. But if you think of it, the Democrats themselves don't have many promise, um, uh, prominent uh, statement. Sorry, that was me. Carry on, JP. That's all right. Um, they don't have many prominent um, uh, uh, Latina uh, and Latino figures, such as like, I mean, there's Julian Castro, for example. He'd probably be one of the more, more prominent figures. By all accounts, they didn't spend as much as outreach on the ground. And I think then there's the kind of ecosystem that exists where the Republican Party did good jobs of kind of hammering the socialist theme, hammering the idea of kind of, of family as well, and kind of playing on, on, on those kind of aspects and the kind of religious conservatism as well to be able to kind of use that as a, as a device. And I think that there are those things that have kind of come together, but there's also an element of the Democratic Party really taking them for granted. I think there was an assumption they weren't possibly thinking in a blase way that the previous wall comments and everything else would be the things that would ultimately swing, swing voters round. But this is possibly where the Democratic Party didn't invest enough in there and it seemed to me that when obama was in um miami dade as well it must have been i i kind of wonder whether or not the internal polling was telling them that we we need to push out um as many voters as we can and possibly going to appeal to younger voters maybe further kind of um excite um other voters of which were part of his coalition in the first place and it just doesn't seem to have worked yeah i mean it's weird because it, it came as the prize the extent but I think the Democrats knew they did an issue in Florida. I think how badly they did in mm. Texas was a surprise. Um, the, um, the one thing I was struck by during the campaign, and I think I remember saying this to you, Luke, was actually Trump really hadn't talked about immigration much this campaign. Like, he'd been his usual racist self, and obviously he did a lot of uh, demagoguing over Black Lives Matter. But actually, he barely mentioned the rule he barely mentioned further restrictions on immigration. And despite the fact that, you know, his, uh, no, his administration is doing those things, you know, no, partly due to coronavirus, but, you know, they really have reduced immigration to America. And you do wonder whether Trump just, you know, definitely 2016, there was big shift towards the Democrats from uh, Latin people. Um, you know, compared to African-Americans, even Asian-Americans now, that that wasn't the case, in, um, in, say, as recently as the 90s. Um, Hispanic people hadn't typically been an overwhelming Democratic constituency. You know, even you know, George, George W. Bush, third of the Hispanic uh, vote in 2004. But you know, Clinton really did run up the numbers in that group. And I think that was because the sheer volume and violence of Donald Trump's, um, you know, anti-Hispanic rhetoric in 2016 did scare people. And actually, the best example of how much it scared people was actually border crossings did go down in the first few months after Trump was elected, 
because people really did feel like people in like in Central America and other parts of Latin America because uh, immigration from Mexico isn't that big an issue now. But like people did genuinely believe that like Donald Trump's election had kind of closed America to Latin American people, and over time that's a wow. And I do wonder if a bit of it was Trump talks about it less. He hasn't done as much. No, he hasn't gone full lurid worst case scenario when it comes to immigration restrictionism. Now, for example, he hasn't been able to repeal DACU. He hasn't really been able to unpick DAPU either, the two executive orders from late Obama period. And so that just meant that some Republican-leaning um, Hispanic people were able to relax and just go back to their previous disposition. Um, what do you think, Luke? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with some of that. I think the, the point about the point that Rich was making earlier on about the 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 last you know the the Hispanic community in the US is extremely diverse and you can't really well, let, well, you remember that was in our pit stop so let Rich make that later oh okay yeah so I'll, I'll throw I'll throw to Rich then for that okay we'll go to Rich first <laughs> okay. Rich do you want to repeat that I mean to be fair it was a point you made in a deep dive when we were on um, uh, last Saturday but do you want to just make the point about why you know, the Hispanic community is not a monolith. Yeah, sure. And and I think it's a bigger thing, especially sitting with you gentlemen here. It, it struck me that I, I don't know if you maybe I've never no one's ever asked you this question, but I'll start with the point and then ask you the question in terms of the point. When you look at places like Florida, Texas, New, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, anywhere where there is a high Hispanic, Latin American, Latinx, Latina population, there is a diverse group of cultures, uh, indigenous versus uh, uh uh, all sorts of different structures going there. So it isn't a monolith. It isn't like uh, histor historically here in the United States, you know, black American vote has been uh, either used as a cudgel or used as a, depending on the time of history you've been in. And so that's a very easy block to kind of look at. While there may be deviations within the black vote vis-a-vis -vis the traditional state of black churches regards to in the 90s and 2000s, uh, LGBTQIA issues. Uh, but on the whole, they'll still vote Democrat because of when you're seen by anything else in society here in the United States, it's black first, then anything else. And so when you look at the Latin American population, it's different. You have a Cuban, and I think they failed uh, dealing with misinformation that's gone on for decades in Florida, particularly amongst Cubans who have come in and emigrated that go on the, uh, the Spanish radio and there's a strong conservative lean, a very strong conservative lean that highlights anything that goes on that's in terms of giving out to uh, the public, anything as far as uh, giving out to the people, that's going to lead to Batista, it's going to lead to Castro, it's going to lead to, you name the former communist or formula authoritarian they've escaped from, and that's what they're telling them is coming down the road. And so that is a stressor for a lot of those populations. Now, what you see is there's a difference, especially when he mentioned the caravan during the midterms and all of that, where you had indigenous uh, Latin American population here, the Mexicans, Mestizos, who dealt with those issues and they pushed back. But now in this election, you look, the numbers in Florida helped tank Florida. However, when you look at Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, those areas that went blue were strongly because of that Latin American Hispanic vote that was more of the uh, the Mexican side of things or the more uh, some, another, I don't, I don't want to be crass, but another non-Cuban 
entity, Puerto Rican, for instance. Uh, and you mentioned the Puerto Rico uh, referendum, 5248. That's just, and it's, like you said, it's inescapable. Because there is a strong, when you look at the people in charge, it's, uh, Will and I talked about this on Saturday, it's a two-to-one ratio of Republicans to Democrats and the highest forms of Puerto Rican governance. And so when you think about those things, you have this mix. And then my question to you all is, in terms of this assimilation, a lot of what happened in the early 20, 19th and 20th century was taking folks from Europe, the Irish, the uh, and, and saying, if you do these things, you're American now. So when you have folks that identify more with white, like Cubans, when you look at the census, identify as white on their census. So when you have those folks, you say, this is what white people do. They're acting in that interest, not necessarily in the interest of here's what Trump said about people who may look like me, because I'm not that anymore. I'm a white American. And so that is, do you have that dynamic in the United Kingdom? Um, I, think the, I think we probably will. But I don't oh, think it's... Do you think that's going to be something? Yeah. And I, think, well, I think the thing is, is that it's a weird one in, uh, in Britain, because obviously if you come from a other European country, you're just seen as somebody who's came from another European country. You're not seen as like an ethnic minority. I mean, there's, there's been differences with things like uh, Eastern Europeans recently because the numbers are so large. But like traditionally, you know, European immigration hasn't had that kind of, oh, you're different. I mean, the closest would be there were issues in the Victorian era with like Scottish and Irish immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know like, you know, prejudice against Irish people was a thing relatively recently. Um, you know, I think as recently as, say, the 1960s, 1970s. I think in, in terms of like um, what we'd call in this country like visible minorities, what you certainly, one of the interesting things is that our uh, no, uh, black Asian communities, whilst they do lean labor, it's nothing like the 90% mm. African-Americans vote Democrats. It is close to the two. The two first, even in this election, uh, Latin people probably did vote uh, Democrat. And part of that is different migration patterns. So you take black people in Britain, you know, you, you, know, you have the rare examples of black people who have long-term roots in the UK, but you have people who came in the immediate post-war in the Rinrush generation, primarily from the Caribbean, primarily uh, those people or their you know, recent ancestors, were working class people moving for work. You then have, you know, people from Africa that moved in the 80s, 90s, noughties and have moved either as political refugees and may have um, opinions about, you know, the dangers of political instability that make them incline more to conservatism, or they may have just been very rich in their own country, which is why they were able to move. I mean, my ex-wife is very much that example. You know, she moved in to uh, 2000, 2003 uh, to join the army. But in actually in Zimbabwe, her family was relatively wealthy. And then you take Asian people, you then get the issue of uh, differences between the African Asians and those from the subcontinent, the different parts of the subcontinent they come from. So uh, Indian Indians were in, in, in inverted commas, tend to be more affluent than Bangladeshi or Pakistanis. Um, Hindu Indians tend to be more likely to uh, have come from Africa as well, because that's where that, that's where the British recruited people to move 
to Africa or the Caribbean, and they are the most conservative ethnic minority in the country. So I think there is that kind of thing. You can see that kind of building that concept of, you know, you can join, you know, you don't have to be part of this, like, left-wing rainbow coalition. You can join the rest of yeah. Earth. But because Britain's not a nation of immigrants, there's not been that kind of policing of what white is, because until, you know, 1948, 95, 6% of Britons were white, even though there were exceptions. But those exceptions tend to be mixed race, and they tend to be more wealthy. You know, people coming back from India, um, you know, linked to the Raj and stuff like that. I don't know what anybody else thinks. Yeah, I mean, I would say... I mean, having never lived in America, it's hard to say because you can only you can only look from the outside in. But my my sense is that British politics is still much more dominated by class, uh, and the idea of what is working class, what is middle class, what's upper class is still far more coherent and cohesive um, in the UK. So I think. Class- Coming directly on that, because I think a key part of that is there is no such thing as a distinct BAME middle class in Britain. That as as you become middle class, you enter the white middle class, no white dominated middle class. You look at mo when you do kind of intervariant analysis, most BAME people even now are working class and relatively fewer in the English. British middle class, and there isn't like those kind of black. No, there's not. There's not such a. a there's no equivalent of say black universities in Britain that act as like thought leaders for a distinct middle class in this country. Mm. Well, sorry, carry on, Luke. Yeah, so I would just say I think I think British politics is still more class dominated, but you do you have really since the 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 noughties in this country. You very much had the, you know, the Conservative Party um, following the, you know, following the GOP, following the the prescription of the GOP autopsy in 2012, i.e. the Conservative Party under David Cameron, and even to the Conservative Party under David Cameron, and continuing on to Boris Johnson, has has made a concerted effort to reach out to certain, like, pockets of ethnic minority communities. So you look at like the British elections survey between 2005 and 2010, there's a big difference in the number of like Hindu voters, voting conservative, Sikh voters, vote conservative because like the conservative party actually like did a lot of research said, actually, if we, these people basically share our values on law and order, on the economy, on a lot of things. So if we can find the right language, we can pick off, uh, we can pick off fairly large amounts of people that either don't don't vote or, in a sense, vote for Labour against their own sort of interests and inclinations, and that that makes, and that that by itself won't win you an election, but it will win you it will win you important seats, particularly in London, particularly in places like London. Manchester, um, you know, it, it's enough to make the Conservative Party more competitive in key parts of the country. And 
that project's really been going on for the better part of 15 years. And I think the difference between the Conservative Party in this country and the Republican Party in the States is that project has been much more consistently followed by Conservative politicians across the ideological spectrum of the Conservative Party than it has been by the GOP. So again, just going very quickly on bringing over people in. I mean, the other two things say that. One, a more cynical thing you might say about the Tory outreach to Hindus and uh, Sikh people is also, I don't know, it's not been overt, but like hinting at a common uh, distrust of Muslim people. You know, in, in some areas of the country, the Labour Party has gotten very associated uh, with Muslim communities, and that's created almost like a equal and opposite reaction against them, um, which I think has certain. I mean, you actually look um, in London. There was a met, probably the most overt this has became was that Goldsmith in 2016 running for London mayor as a Tories running against Sadiq Khan, you know, running to be the first Muslim mayor of a major European city, and like they were literally sending adverts out to London, uh, London Sea communities saying Sadiq Khan was coming for your gold, that ceremonial gold. And people thought this was a humiliating flop because uh, that goldsmith did not do well in their election. But when you actually analyse you know, what Americans would say would be the precinct level data, actually that goldsmith did better than Boris Johnson um, did in winning in defeat in those predominantly Hindu Sikh areas because that message had resonated. The problem was it just offended a lot of white people. Um, and I think that that's one of the key things um, you, you always have to remember with Britain is we're just a much whiter country than America. Like, you know, our census is out of date, but our census put, you know, the non-white British uh, populations, so that will include white people who aren't, who aren't white British or white Irish you know, white, white, Polish, that puts it at less than 20%. So, so that does reduce some of the racial polarization that's uh, true of America. But also because of the nature of the way our politics are structure, structured, the Tories can parachute in black and Asian Tories into predominantly white seats in a way that's almost unthinkable in America. You know, like there, there, there are Tory MPs where they're almost the non-white population of their own constituency because of how the Tories aggressively said, no, you're great. We want you to be the, the like, kind of like a face of our party. We want you in our party. Move to this area of the country. You be the candidate in this safe Tory seat. Ironically, something Labour's much worse at doing. Uh, JP or Simon, do you want to come in? No, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I agree with all of that. I was literally sitting there going, I'm going to bring up Zach Goldsmith's mayoral campaign. And then you did. And so, I mean, yeah, no, I, th I think that the racial politics of the UK and the racial politics of the US are, are radically different. And mm. it's a classic case of, you know, the worst analysis of this race. Uh, it tries to kind of read across the situation and they are very different. And the United States and the UK are very different countries, you know, because I think we we consume so much American media, you know, American TV, American films, American music, and because you know they share the same language with us, you know, we can we can sit there and we can all say, you know, we could bring John King over and he'd be, you know, zooming <laughs> in on what's happening in Berry North, and we'd all get very excited. Um, the idea that we could, you know, and we think we can read our analysis across, we can't. They are too 
the United States and the United Kingdom are very different countries, mm. and we have you have to treat them as, as separate places. Uh, JP. Yeah, I, I would say that I completely agree with all of them. It's sort of listening absolutely intensely, sort of just thinking about um, it's that idea of being able to sort of parachute people in. And you say it's, it's part of this kind of longer term planning and just from the Conservatives and being able to stick to it. But then I go back to what Luke said, where I kind of just think it's it's the, it's the class based element that seems to be the kind of like more divisive lines within um, within British politics. I mean, you got to remember, I think, I think either 2019 or 2015, it's one of those two elections, was the first election where Labour's biggest demographic block wasn't non-college-educated white people. Mm. So, like, we just, you know, the Democrats are just much further along this shift away from the white working class than Labour is. So I hope that answers your question, Mitch. But the one thing, to bring it back, um, as we talk about representation, and actually you can make the argument Republicans have been quite good at uh, Latin representation. You know, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. And you could also make the argument that actually the Democrats haven't been brilliant and they've not been brilliant at kind of what Latin American like, senators they have are pushing them forward. So bearing in mind what you said, I think it is absolutely true that you know, the, the Latin no, uh, Hispanic Americans, Latin Americans are not a homogenous block. But how do the Democrats do better? Because obviously, if, they, if they're going to be competitive in Texas, or they're going to be competitive in Florida. They do need to do better. I think they have to embrace the very nature that took them to uh, promote Barack Hussein Obama to president. Because back in the seventies, when he was going by Barry, that was very similar to that assimilation process of not being cool with his own name, not being cool with who he was. There's a reason why Mark Rubio and Ted Cruz are the Hispanic representatives of the GOP. They're guys who are very uh, uh, Caucasian, like Raphael. He should be Raphael, but he goes by Ted because that's easier. You know, that, that, that sort of, uh, again, goes back to what I was saying before. It's that invitation of if you do this, you're American. If you do, like for me, um, I, I could give you an example, and I'll be real quick from hockey. Uh, because of I, the fact that, and, and this is just a point of fact about myself, I, I grew up in a Russian Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And so that's where most of my love of Russia came from. Understanding that these folks told me about the really hard life they had and they were Ooh, uh, mm, uh, yes. a little behind. I'm a little behind, but that was all. Uh, and, and they were just so accepting of this, the blacks and Puerto Ricans that are in our neighborhood. There wasn't any of the divisiveness that you would see in places like Bensonhurst in New York, which might have had, or uh, uh, Brighton Beach, which was a big Russian enclave that really was almost, a, uh, they didn't want anyone else. Uh, but the one thing I took from that was those folks would tell me how they had to anglicize their names. And the one thing my mom, you know, she always would joke with us because growing up, I flipped from a 95% black school to 5% black by the time I moved to the Poconos. And so she's like, not every kid's going to be named Richard. It's going to be, you have to learn what people's names are because names are important to them. So if I met a Nikolai, if I met uh, a Khadija, if I met whomever in my travels, I try to learn people's names because that's very important. So for the folks like that, you need to get involved with the people who have that cultural tie-in. With Ted, it's not there. Even with the little short uh, things you saw, even they would have crews do, 
mentioning Kamala Harris and calling her Kamala or Trump himself saying, you know, she doesn't know how to say her name right. I think that really was both to the folks uh, like an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, who can or, uh, you know, anyone in the all of it's actually funny. I'd love to do a paper on the, the power of names, but that's a conversation. Of, uh, when you look at like the block of the squad and how they went into their communities and they were able to get those people who were being told they're not really American citizens because they don't have the right name. And then you look in those areas in Florida where they may have the same name, but they've changed it enough so that they're cool, quote unquote. That's what they have to do. They have to reach those people and say, one, you don't have to change anything to be American. Because when I have someone like when I was investigating Mikhail Kwiatkowski, you have to learn that name. You have to learn. It's not I'm going to call him Mike Kwiatkowski. Here in Pittsburgh, this is a walking example of American ethnocentrism. You find a penguin, you will find the person's name has been changed. Like Yevgeny Malkin is Gino Malkin to Pittsburghers. And so it's like, you're Gino. It's like, why? And it's like, just because we call him Gino. So that's what they have to do. They have to figure out the drill into those communities and find ways to make them feel accepted without having to take that whole deal that the GOP is throwing at them. Because right now they're not doing it and they haven't done it. And until they let folks like AOC get into the inner workings of the congressionals, House, uh, the, the the big business, like I saw the con, the the, the t- transcript of the call they were recently doing. Until they let those folks do things, until you realize you need less former Ohio governors speaking at your national convention and more of your young statesmen and women, you might need one of the uh, the twins in Texas. I'm surprised they didn't get any of those gentlemen. I can't remember either his name right now, and I feel ridiculous. Julian and Joaquin. Thank you, because I was like, they are literally the example of what I'm talking about. Both of them, Julian in particular, because I think Joaquin kind of has been in the four, but I think Julian, that could have been a time for him to have that Obama moment from uh, the first DNC where he spoke, where you could say introducing. And until they figure that out, they're, we're going to have that problem. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. I mean, I think the other thing as well is I think as Arizona and Nevada are good examples of this. you got to get the unions involved. I mean, you know, you know, it, it, as far as you make generalizations about Hispanic Americans, which I agree with you, um, you can't. Um, but as long as you can, it, you know, they tend to be more working class. They tend to, you know, it's not like African Americans when you have these, um, the black church, other black uh, cultural institutions kind of bind the community together. You know, you are dealing with people who are maybe a bit off the grid, a bit more difficult to reach. And you've got to do long-term organizing. And you look at Arizona, if you look at Nevada, you know, these are areas where the Democrats have gotten used to actually organizing and mobilizing uh, Latin Americans. And, you know, sometimes you have to do that in like a rough and ready style. You know, you can't go and say Latinx. You can't go and talk about institutional racism. You can't talk about intersectionality because this just doesn't mean anything to them. You've got to go, you got to hit the bread and butter. You've got to hit the issues that matter to them. And I think it feels like that's where they may have gone wrong um, in, in, in Texas. With Florida, you just have, you know, you just, I think Florida is just a right-leaning state now. And, you know, one of the things you've got to say with Trump, he's not had a good, he's not been a good foreign policy president, but he has been good at using his foreign policy to kind of crudely help his electoral prospects. So all the peace deals with Arab nations for Israel recently, and also the kind of old school 80s uh, Cold Warrior 
uh, stuff in Latin America to try and win over conservative Latin Americans in uh, Florida. So, um, yes, I think I think that that'll be a story that dominates for a while. Any final thoughts on this from anybody? Uh, Luke, we haven't actually asked you about this question. Any thoughts from you, Luke? No, I actually just wanted to move on because I've been I've been looking at this Biden uh, press conference. Oh yeah, our, our Joe Biden correspondent. He's in the he's in the reporting pool. Yeah, uh, it's quite it's it, it's it's actually it's actually quite good politics from Biden because it started off with you know people have got to be patient, every vote's got to count, you know. We're we're working towards this, and oh, by the way, I've just been in a, in a series of briefings about the coronavirus response with experts. So I'm starting to act like a president elect <laughs> without claim, without actually claiming victory. I, but can I just ask a question about actually about Biden? Who here saw his uh, speech in full on election night? Just show hands, and I'll go to you. All right, Rich, did you not think? That election night speech was more like what Biden normally is. Like he's tried to be like this grandfather of the nation during the campaign. And it felt like he was letting it hang out. He was a bit more, you know, scrappy Joe from Scranton. Yeah, he was more the Joe who wants to grab the six pack. And remember, like you said, to your point, you need more of that because and I think my brain's going a mile a minute. I bear with me. I apologize. You need that, but when you say you need that, that means you need a politician, and that's anathema to what a lot of younger folks think a politician is. A politician is someone who gets to know the people in their constituency to the point that they can bring up stories, anecdotes like that, and it's not something that's practiced. When you can go to a teamster and remember the six-pack you promised them six years ago, and you have it, and you're like, son, this guy remembered it. And that sort of thing is what you need in all those communities you mentioned. And it isn't going to be, like you said, pie charts. And so when he did that press conference, I love – it's basically like, hey, gang, here's the deal. Here's what's going on. We're going to count these votes. It's going to be fine. And then, like you said, he's like, "Don't we don't need to work. And meanwhile, you have the sitting president ranting like a lunatic. And so that dichotomy is something that's also very appealing. Like Luke said – it's very, you know, we've heard this several times in four years, very presidential. And it's like, no, it's that's presidential. It isn't the fact that you can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. And so having that opportunity to come out and do this press conference and say, hey, I'm going to give you some updates on coronavirus because clearly you're not hearing about that right now. You were told after the election day it would disappear like a poof in a smoke. No, we had the most deaths, uh, most cases in the United States, 100,000 people, uh, not, not I'm sorry, 1,000 people in a day. Boom. Oh, it's still here. We got to take care of that, guys. Let, let's, let's, let's move through. And I really appreciated that. Well, good. We now bring it on to a question I wanted to bring on in part of this segment, which is, and I'll go round as I find out on. So this is not a prediction, we glad to know. Hmm. But was Joe Biden the right candidate? Could somebody else have done better? Um, and I will go with Simon first. I don't think so. Not of the sort of not, not just the candidates. Not like yeah, yeah, that's it. Not just not just like of the people who ran, but of the people who like realistically could run. We we talked months ago. I I remember. I think it was sort of Democratic convention time. I said, you know, I I'd gone down the list of like Democratic governors, and because of the failure of the Obama administration to kind of kind of fill in to some extent there, you know, their their slate. 
there just weren't any long-standing guys you know, people who had that executive experience, which I think might have helped. I, but other than that, I think that I think you know Sanders would have done worse, and sort of, I think Sanders would have done worse in 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 Florida. I think I don't think he would have. I think he would have scared the horses in some of those midwestern states, which obviously we're still waiting for some of the results. But it looks okay, lads. It looks okay. Um, I think Warren would. Warren, I like more intellectually than I know Will does, but you know, like I don't think she would have done the job. I think Buttigieg wouldn't. I, I I don't think there was anyone who could have done a better job at this. And also, like it was a really weird campaign. Like the coronavirus did change a lot. I think there is a serious question about whether Trump would be, you know, looking forward to another four years in the White House if the coronavirus hadn't happened. Um, but I think with it, you wanted that kind of reassurance of someone who you know you just knew and and could just quietly trust. And for that reason, yeah, I think he was the best candidate. Uh, JP? Yeah, I think he was the best candidate. I think it, it was down to the absolute overall focus. They needed someone who was going to be able to get 270 electoral votes, isn't going to scare people away in the Rust Belt. That was always kind of the focus and allowed the election, not as successfully as we thought it was, but to be pulled out as a as a referendum on Trump. And he kind of allowed that. And it was fascinating watching the Democratic primaries. And the reason he's there is Jim Clyburn. Is Jim Clyburn in South Carolina. At that point, there was a kind of pragmatism that took over the Democratic Party that as someone who's a Labour Party member, I deeply appreciated. And um, as a result of that, it felt like even though it, it wasn't the most necessarily inspiring campaign, there was one fundamental job that needed to happen, and that was removing Donald Trump. There's a reason he got impeached by by trying to kind of um, like ruin him and the, and the Hunter Biden stuff, which I'll be fascinated to know in the kind of when the dust has settled on this, how much of an actual effect did that did that have at all? If any, did it help in terms of any of the Republican turnout? Did it kind of play into that stuff? So I actually think he was the best candidate for the job that they needed to do, which was winning the presidency and winning over those swing states. Uh, Luke? Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the, I think I'm going to be the contrarian of the group, which is, I don't actually think Joe Biden, I mean, obviously he is the strongest candidate because he was the guy that won. The question kind of answers itself, but, are you going to go on a bare pee, Radley? Go on. I really wanted Pete Buttigieg to be the nominee. But actually, no, the guy I, the guy I was thinking of didn't, was, one of the, was one of the guys that didn't run, which was um, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, Senator from Ohio. I think he would have, I think he would have bought a lot of the same qualities as Joe Biden. But... It does, I still I can never get over the fact that that a man who is seventy eight is about to assume the most stressful job on the planet, and that doesn't say anything good to me about the state of American democracy. I mean, I mean when when you when you when you've been a public figure since the Nixon administration, by two thousand and twenty, your time should have passed. It's not like he was elected at the Nixon midterms in 74. It's at the start of Nixon's second term. 
It's like I was three when he first, he first, the, the, well, sorry, I'd have been two when he first ran for president, two or one. Um, but um, the, the, as Rich is on the move, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll t- take mine first. I, this is because I was quite big on Sanders. And I was big on Sanders because I thought he'd love the overlap with Biden in the sense of I thought he, he, sp- he spoke like a normal person. He would talk to people. Uh, yeah, he'd have the socialist thing, but the Republicans call every Democrat a socialist. That's not a big deal. And he'd focus it on bread and butter issues. And I think the reality is, is that, well, coronavirus destroys Sanders' advantage in that. It seems like the socialism thing is a bigger deal than we expected, given like the, the, the drift away in Florida. But I think as well, I think that the, the unique thing with Biden is, Biden is somebody, you know, is very focused on those well, white, well, what we in Britain call white working class, non-college educated whites. Obviously, he's from Pennsylvania, so he has, you know, he has that feel for that Rust Belt area. But he's also somebody with a close relationship with uh, African-American Democrats, both just as a long-standing Democratic senator, but also just as, you know, Obama's vice president. And I think, I don't think anybody could, because you look at, from what we can see, um, with the exception of the the, the trends with Hispanic Americans we were talking about uh, just a minute ago, the three big trends seem to be the Republican, no, the Democrats have lost ground a bit in suburbia compared to the massive gains they made in the midterms in 2018. It's hurt them in the House. It doesn't really mean much in the in the presidential elections. They've 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 gained a bit amongst non-college educated whites, particularly in the in the Rust Belt, and they've kept the high African American turnout. And I don't know anybody could have done the, the other two. And I think a big part of it was, is, is when you had the, uh, the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, I think it's all like Sanders, who I think would have similar instincts to Biden, wouldn't have the confidence in his relationship with the African-American community to actually stick to, we support peaceful protests, we oppose rioting, we support racial justice. We oppose defunding the police. I think Sanders would have felt compelled to meet uh, unrepresent- the demands of unrepresentative activists, and that would have probably hurt him in quite key areas. Um, Rich, are you back? Yes. So, Rich, w- was Biden the right candidate? I think for me, he was going in just from a pragmatic standpoint of seeing what happened with Clinton. One of the things, as much as a flawed candidate she was uh, purported to be and had been in many areas, including what I mentioned as far as that blue wall failed to maintain, there's a lot of misogyny in the United States. There's a lot of racism, as we clearly see with the vote in the United States as well. And I think that is an issue that Joe Biden navigated quite well. And then the pandemic became something that... uh, was unplanned for in terms of the scope. And I, what I mean by that is he had to navigate a presidential election in his third attempt at running for president, mind you, that he couldn't really do any big crowds. He couldn't do, in fact, he was encouraging no crowds. 
And I don't think there was any other Democratic candidate that had the uh, I don't want to say Q rating because that's kind of crap. But he had this. He had the the, the bodies in the dirt. He had the he, history for good or for bad. In any other campaign, he would have been sunk with the crime bill, especially during this era of police violence. In any other era, the gaffes, the the the, the misspeaks, the if, if you're voting for Trump, you ain't black. If any if any of that stuff could have individually sunk him, but against this opponent and in this time, it's like great man versus great time theory. Like this was the moment he was made for because he had also been the vice president for one of the most uh, constructive uh system focused presidents we've had in 20 years as much as people talk about obama being you know he's different when you look at the electoral win he won by 13% no one's winning by 13% in in and i don't know in, in in the next 10 years at least for me uh but the one thing he didn't do is what trump constantly did which was obama went away for 4 years he did his work he did his book michelle did her becoming tour him on CNN or MSNBC or any of these other channels just completely derailing Trump whenever Trump said something stupid until the moment Trump got COVID. I thought that was, again, going back to being a politician, that was a stroke of political genius. Obama was the hammer for Biden in a way no other president could have been and no other person could have been. While Biden went up there and did one of those, just like Luke just said, and he, hey, gang, President's got COVID. We are pulling negative ads. We are just going to talk about the issues. 44, however, is going to tell you how this guy is, and I can't control the United States. And then Obama let loose the Kraken for the last six weeks of oh. just every time he could. He just took shot after shot. I mean, nothing had to bother Trump more than the weekend going into Election Day of Obama walking up, hitting that three and saying, I do that and walking out. <laughs> oh, I think it would be jokes. I mean, just like, you know how Obama's got that Netflix deal? If mm -hmm. they don't guess him, doing like, you know, like, doing these, um, uh, Dave Chappelle's doing these COVID era. A select stand-up show. They've got Lessman doing a stand-up gig for the first time in decades. They have to get Obama to do a stand-up set because the guy's funny. Now, admittedly, that may be why we're in this mess with Trump because he took it too far back in 2012. But like, the guy is funny. And some of those riffs he was getting on Trump, I think there was one where it's like, the one thing I can promise you is uh, Joe and Carmelo uh, are elected uh, are elected on Tuesday. They won't have time to send dumbass tweets out on Twitter. <laughs> yep. And, and, and the one thing I took away from him was, and, and that even goes back to when you think about it, Will, he, Trump's always been a bully. He's always been this person. And it took a president saying, I've heard you talk. Like, remember, the reason he pushed back is because for four and a half years, he said that he wasn't an American citizen and didn't deserve it. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was right to do it. And so he felt like he was justified in taking a couple of shots which in Trump's world became a declaration of war that meant he had to be president and eradicate every, and that goes back to what I said earlier. This is very pro wrestling. The pettiness of him wanting to eradicate everything Obama led to the very, if he had left, I talked to that with my partner Travis yesterday. If he had left the Obama era infectious disease department and done what he usually does and slap his name on the back of it and say it was the Trump infectious disease center that then stopped uh, COVID and gave the cure. And that's it. 
if he wanted to give out a Trump bucks every six weeks, twelve hundred bucks, that would have been it. Well, no, no, even better. The best example of that is Obamacare. If Trump had have just have said mm -hmm. we're zero rating the individual mandate, uh, red states get your ass in gear, accept Medicaid expansion. By the way, I fixed Obamacare. It's now wonderful. It's Trump care. But that's, because he's, but that's because he's a uniformly a terrible candidate, which comes back to kind of the point that Simon has said at the very, very start of the show. He is the worst candidate. And every time he's been given kind of open goals and he managed and it's quite incredible to kind of get some of these wrong. But it is it is these kind of issues for someone as well who is lazy. The, the idea of kind of disbanding the infectious diseases group, it's its like you didn't even have to do anything. You could have just done what you do with your hotels and effectively just use your name as a as a kind of branding tool on this. But, yeah, he's its a—he's a terrible candidate. And, I mean, I don't know what you say about his political instincts. I suppose oh. he, he won one election, but it's its very much ski with. I think, I think that's what you call beginner's look. It actually brings you... Yeah. Segment, which is, um, you know, Joe Biden, should he be elected? That would be the first time. Now, here's a, here's a stat for you, right? Simon kind of trailed this. If Joe Biden is elected, that would be the first time the Democrats have been able to restrict the GOP to only a four-year stint in the White House since 1892, when Simon's man, Grover Cleveland, Gained a White House on Benjamin Harrison at the first opportunity. <laughs> you, you can help me, Simon. But anyway, but, but, but like, but what are the interesting things? No, your Grover Cleveland fact is better than mine. <laughs> in, in, in the competition of best Grover Cleveland facts, you win. <laughs> However, like, it was a bittersweet night because actually, despite you, you, know, you already started to see it, particularly has to be said about British people. Uh, who want to make Boris Johnson feel better about himself. You get in that thing of, well, look how great Trump is. He's the white working class whisperer. But actually, across the um, across America, down-ballot GOP candidates are doing better than Trump. Um, you know, whether it's in the Rust Belt, whether it's in the South, whether it's in the West, Trump is running behind the GOP. And what that has meant is... Well, you know, I mean, we haven't said it yet. We have to bear in mind that this is an incredible achievement. I mean, it is actually very difficult to beat an incumbent president. And the the, the, no, the most recent examples of beating incumbent presidents, with the exception of Jimmy Carter, which was a weird one because he probably only got the presidency just a backlash from Watergate and the Ford pardoning Nixon. And he was up against an unelected incumbent who had been, even been elected vice president and have been when a party had already been in office. You know, George H.W. Bush. Um, oh, God. Uh, Herbert Hoover. You know, it is difficult to beat the, oh, actually, Robert Taft. So uh, Jimmy Carter. So Jim, uh, serious fact, Jimmy Carter is previously the only president to have taken the White House his party and then immediately lose it straight after since Benjamin Harrison and Trump is now in that like kind of loser's row and I, I think there are less 
excuses for that than there were for Carter or Harrison. No, Harrison's excuse being he's running against his predecessor. But, you know, you look at what's happened to the Democrats. No, they're losing seats in the House. They're not a few, quite a few. They're going to keep the majority, but they have lost seats. They're, mm-hmm. no, no, no. We hope they're going to flip key state legislators so they'd have a bigger say in redistricting. That's not happening. They actually lost the House in New Hampshire, which is going to reduce their control of redistricting there. Like in the states, it looks like 22 states will have Republican trifectas compared to nine Democratic uh, Democratic trifectas. So a lot of the biased House maps are going to continue. And as we've talked about, at the moment, it looks like we'll end up, unless something really weird happens in Alaska, uh, which we won't know for several weeks, it looks like we'll have a 50-48 Senate with two seats outstanding um, in Georgia, as they go off to their runoff elections due to their wacky French-style electoral system. So, uh, Luke, the question is: How does Luke? How how does Luke? You're not president. How does Joe Biden govern in this landscape? Uh, with great difficulty. Um, I mean, the the thing is. Because he, obviously any American president, particularly any American president in the modern era, can do a lot by executive action. But there are things he just can't do by executive action. Print, uh, first among them, there's going to need to be a massive um, stimulus bill. And you could, you could see this already in the sort of waning days of the, the campaign. You know, the Trump administration failed to get a stimulus through the through the Senate, um, and, you know, you already had, like, you already had, like, GOP senators rediscovering their concern about deficit spending. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, Biden is going to have to, Biden is going to have to get a big stimulus bill through the Senate. And, you know, if he succeeds in that, that could actually be quite, um, that could actually be quite an accomplishment in itself, because, you can use a stimulus to like transform things like education, healthcare, infrastructure. I mean, if Obama had taken his health um, stimulus and broken it into three or four bills, they'd probably be the three or four most consequential bills since the Great Society. But people just see it as the stimulus. But yeah, so he's got to do that. He's got to get his cabinet confirmed, which could be awkward um, for certain slots. And he's got to try, and he's got to try and get ju- some judges confirmed, which is going to be all but impossible in a Republican-controlled Senate, I would think. Yeah, and I think the key thing as well is, is like this is going to be a a, a key test of um, Biden's smoothing skills because mm. I think Biden could rustle up the Republican votes to get to fifty, but. That doesn't matter because Mitch McConnell controls the floor. You've got to get Mitch McConnell to let things go past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a real challenge. Um, uh, what do you think, JP? I think I agree with Luke in the sense that that we've still got Mitch McConnell in place. And that's going to be the, the biggest part of the issue. I also wonder as well... Are the Democrats going to look at, the, at what's necessarily happened in the House and decide are they going to change things around with um, with Nancy Pelosi? 
And in some ways, this might not be a politically bad time to do it, given how effectively she is used as part of the more divisive campaigns that Republicans go with. Um, it's just hard to see, in essence, how how he can govern. And it just and it and I don't see what the motivation for the Republicans is to want to govern with them, which is as much part of this. Um there's still going to be, and I mentioned, I said it at the, at the start, like in some ways that this is like a, a kind of a great result for the Republicans who can now strip themselves of some of the baggage of Trump without losing any of the power. Um, well, you and, know what I, I meant to say, JP, you know what it reminds me of? Do mm. you remember after Survivor Series 2001 where they had, they bring out, uh, you have Instant Man open. Yes. The, the post, post, uh, post pay-per-view Raw. And he brings out Paul Heyman to be the raw kind of commentator and Paul Hamer's just going, they go away with it. They go away with it. <laughs> That's what I think Mitch McConnell's like now. He's like, I shut myself up to this lunatic for four years yep. and I've gotten a six free Supreme Court and I've still got my majority. Um, I'm really good. Uh, <laughs> Luke's got to go in a minute. Luke, um, we're going to finish up after you've gone, but do you want to give us your prediction for the for the forthcoming weeks and months ahead? Uh, I think my only prediction for the forthcoming weeks and months ahead is unplug the phone. Um, you know, cover, unplug the phone, don't watch TV. It's going to be a hellacious couple of months for you. Um, <laughs> I think that's a very sound sound prediction oh, also, I'm, not, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go through like biden's entire cabinet but i'm put i would if i was a betting man i'd put i'd put a couple of quid on doug jones the now former senator for alabama as biden's pick for attorney general yeah because i mean i think that was always likely but now senate the senate usually is kind to nominations from within its ranks um, and so I think that I think I think you're right. I think that's one that would probably get in. But anyway, we will we will catch you later on the next episode of it. Could be said, Luke, as uh, you go. Um, it was great, it was great to, it was great to meet you, JP and Rich. Lovely to meet you as well, Luke. So we now move on to Simon. Uh, Simon, um, what are your thoughts of the landscape that that uh, uh, present? Uh, uh, picked by Will to win ultimately, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, what, what landscape uh, will he inherit? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a great deal to add to what people have said. It's a, it's a really, it's going to be really hard if they'd only if they'd won a couple more Senate seats, it would be it would be completely different. But you know, they've not. Well, it's it's indicative of how poor a candidate Trump was. I think that he didn't win this election um, with the rest of the Republican landscape, as you said, but. No, it's it's going to be a fight, and we know we Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is the kind of politician who will refuse to give Joe Biden eggs for breakfast if that's what he wants. You know, this is going. He's going to go. I can sit here for two, four years, not letting anything through. Find a Republican who can beat Joe Biden or Kamala Harris if Joe Biden chooses not to run in twenty twenty four, and. And just get nothing done and just, you know, and wait. And then an elderly Republican can retire from the Supreme Court and they'll have another seat. And I, I 
I'm really pleased that Trump is gone, but it doesn't mean that any of America's other deeper problems are anything uh, anything closer to being solved. Uh, Rich, what do you think? I think it's going to be short-term pain, long-term gain, because a lot of the mechanisms Republicans put in place uh, during the Trump campaign administration are going to be things that the Democrats are going to have to use for that two-year period, most notably if they play hardball with cabinet members, interim. Everyone's an interim. Mm. We can figure that out. And then keep doing that. And while you're filling up with qualified civil servants and you're making executive orders, because if that's what good for the goose, good for the gander, uh, those things have to get done. And I think if there has to be an executive mandate for masks in January, that's going to be the thing that has to get pushed as opposed to seeking that as part of an aid package, for instance, because I don't think too many people will go for it. And again, I know Luke mentioned it before he left, and I think Simon alluded to it, too, the idea of, you know, there's going to need to be aid packages because folks are in dire straits. Those places he mentioned and went to in Scranton need those pieces of funding. And you need to figure out, you know, he came to Pittsburgh and the first thing they said because he came with Lady Gaga was she's anti-fracking. And it's like, well, right now, fracking people are anti-fracking because they're not making money because Gazprom and other Russian companies are flooding the market. So you have to figure something out to get those people on your side because you can't leave them behind. I I am not a person who, uh, you know, when I look at some of the machinations of Trump and some of the people who voted the 60 some odd million, I don't think everyone's a racist, but I think some of them are neutral to race issues if it means their bank account uh, gets a little bigger or they get to feel a little better. I think of uh, LBJ's quote, if you can tell the poorest white guy they're better than someone else of color, they'll take it. And some of that you're never going to be able to eradicate from the state, the stain in the DNA of our country. But I think what they could do in the short term to get that long term gain is put themselves in a position that McConnell can't squeeze out of it. You have to go on the offensive. If you have this bill, kind of like what happened in Pennsylvania, we are now in a world where Fox News has pundits screaming at GOP Republican, uh, GOP Pennsylvanians who put the election into question by not allowing them to count the votes. Like, that's what they're saying right now on Fox News as we're talking. So we're at a point where they're yelling at them because they're saying, you guys screwed it up for all of us, even though the president. And so you need to keep that sort of heat on them. And the more you can do that, the more Joe can go across the aisle. I think he's going to have maybe one Republican, maybe two in his cabinet, have that team of rivals and then show the country I'm in good faith, because I think he has that kind of cachet for that. Do you, um, Rich, um, as the American here, um, the, the right, I mean, there's been two occasions where you had an incoming um, Democratic president and the Georgia Senate election has gone off to a runoff. Both times Republicans have won quite easily. Um, would you give the Democrats any chance of winning those two seats, given the fact that normally the reason why the Republicans win easily is to drop off in turnout because... You know, the Democrats have won, Democrats hold the Senate, it's not that important to Democrat voters. Is there a chance the Democrats can pull something out at the 25th hour? I think this is going to be, and my, my guy JP will appreciate this, and not in a good way, this is going to be the most karmic version of Fergie time you see in American politics. <laughs> because one of the main reasons when we finally see this get called in Georgia is Stacey Abrams was the frontline person who pushed every single button necessary to the point of getting technology for voting fixed. 
to make sure this election carried through. And that is going to be the difference because she's going to make sure and others like her in the field on the ground that that gets done. I think COVID didn't help when it came to areas like working with the Latino, Hispanic, Latinx population. But when it came to Georgia in particular, when it came to Michigan and Wisconsin, the people who were knocking on those doors and said, we can't let this happen again, save this election for the Democrats. Mm. Far more than any, uh, you know, I, I argued tongue in cheek that I think another thing that helped was a person like The Rock coming out and again, out of hibernation, being completely neutral and saying, we need this guy because he's a leader. And you guys have seen me on Democrat and Republican tickets, which I also am doing a deep dive with Will at some point. And we're going to talk about how interesting it was. This was the least uh, SmackDown Your Vote campaign active yes. time mm. history since they started it. In 19 years, this is the least amount of time they put on getting people to go out and vote. Funny how that was. Mm. Very, very, very true. Um, um, yeah, I mean, my, I think the thing is, I mean, it's a while ago now, but uh, Matthew Eagles is a writer of Vox I really like. He mm. made a point that actually you have to be kept, you know, the worst case scenario actually is you get a Republican Senate, Joe Biden presidency, and it kind of works. You know, Joe Biden's an old guy. He entered into what today would be quite a, right, a lot of right-wing stances. And actually, who knows? Maybe Mitch McConnell would work with him. And him and Mitch McConnell cobble together a governing agenda that's actually quite right of center. Not far right like the Republicans have been trying to do since Bush v. Gore. But, you know, close to the type of stuff Clinton was doing when he was having to work hand in glove with Gingrich. And, you know, but they, no, it, maybe the Democrats keep hold of the House, maybe Republicans keep hold of the Senate, maybe Biden wins re-election, because if he's still alive, he's running for re-election. I mean, people are far too uh, naive to think that a guy who wants to be president at 78 is just going to stand aside at 82. Um, yes, he'd be too old to run for re-election. He's too old to run now. He's <laughs> um, and I do think people may be underestimating the possibility that this is fine. That actually, a bit like David Cameron, when he didn't get his majority in 2010, David Cameron is very comfortable being like this balancing act between the Liberal Democrats and his like, most radical flag, in this case, the, the hard-right Conservatives, and I can see Joe Biden just being very comfortable balancing the Republican Party with the left-wing Democrats. But that does depend on Mitch McConnell wanting to play ball. I think Mitch, well, I, I, I think Mitch McConnell saw the politics right in 2008 with the blanket opposition. It was, it was you know, disgraceful, disappointing tactics, but I think they were right for the Republican Party. I now think if you're Mitch McConnell, you, you, you should be looking at what Angela Merkel has done to the Social Democratic Party in Germany. You co-opt that party into your governing agenda because Biden will want to be a successful president. You know, he will do things for you if you do things for him. But you know, whether Mitch McConnell will do that is another question. Anyway, uh, any any points out? JP, you had your hand up? Just one really quick point. I think one of the things that Biden won't do 
is energize the Republican base. And that's one of the things that they had with Obama. So in terms of fundraising and in terms of that kind of energy and being able to do that, the sheer visceral kind of hatred that they that they had for Obama and all of the things that came along with that, that's not there in Biden. And so it's going to be quite a difficult thing to try and see, like, how, for example, the Republicans are going to be trying to kind of formulate a kind of, I don't know, a, a, a strategy against Biden that feels like it's going to stick. And if he's coming across as a kind of a unity candidate, which which he which no doubt he will be, because that's that's who he is. I think they're going to find that tough. It's that kind of dynamic that really, in the in a sense, is what Trump found. He was up against someone who whose favorable ratings increased during an election, which is something that doesn't really happen. Somebody who you know doesn't you know they would talk about forty seven years and then try and say how corrupt he was, and it was just this kind of message of. He's been there for 47 years. I know if at that kind of high national level, if there was corruption there, I'm sure you would have found out about it by now. And I, and I wonder whether or not, and this probably comes into being that kind of good candidate, that kind of Teflon effect that he might have, being able, of being able to work with Republicans, that that might be something that, that Mitch, McConnell, Mitch McConnell's going to find quite hard to kind of disarm. Whether or not he's going to get a, like, is Susan Collins, for example, going to be able to be pulled more over towards sort of voting with a Biden? Because she might be thinking about, you know, you know, what her future might be in Maine and so on and so forth. Older, you got Lisa Mikowski and she'll be running again. Yeah. She'll be running again, I think, in 20, you know, 2022. So she, you know, she, she was a writing candidate um, uh, mm. last time around. So she'll be looking again for democratic support. Yeah. So I, I do. I, I I get. I mean, I think here's here's a final. This is a final question. Then we're going to final predictions, and then after final predictions, Simon, you can leave because I have a wrestling theme question for JP. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I you you may have noted the extent to which every time the wrestling chat has come in, I have just quietly not said anything. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> usually some people are like, oh, this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's- like people tuning in for a politics podcast. Oh no, they're talking about wrestling. I've got nothing against it. The only way, the only way though, that I ever look intelligent is by quietly not saying anything about things I don't know anything about. I think you want to say the only way you look intelligent is not talking about wrestling when the other idiots are talking about. No, <laughs> I don't believe. I don't believe there's such a thing as wasted as useless knowledge. You should know this about me, Will. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I don't know, um, JP will know, but I don't know if you've ever heard of Mastermind, uh, uh, Rich, uh, the base of the United States after years that you guys have it. Yeah, so uh, Simon was on Mastermind, and didn't you win? I, I, I reached the semifinals twice, not that it's a sore point. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's that's I, I, your I YouTube you. sorted for the evening, then. <laughs> if if you search yeah. my name in Mastermind, there are some video clips of me with uh, ill-advisedly longer hair than I have now. Let's put it that way. Different uh, times, Simon. It was twenty. You know, it's twenty twenty it now. Twenty eleven. I mean, you know, we, we were all you know riding donkeys at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do you think Biden goes hard personally for Georgia, or does he um, stand aloof um, because he doesn't want to kind of queer the pitch for his outreach to the Republican? the Senate GOP 
after he gets inaugurated. I will say, as Luke is not here, when I put this to Luke, he called me an idiot and said, of course, Joe Biden goes hard for those two Georgia Senate seats to give it give the Democrats a majority. Uh, what do you think, Rich? I think he's going to go for it. I think he's going to go for it, or he might do what he did uh, during the aforementioned uh, COVID situation and let Obama and some of, like, Stacey and some of the folks on the ground do it. But him, he's going to do the, hey, gang, we need – he's going to do a couple of those calls. He might send Kamala down there. And then – because the timing, the 5th and the 20th, it's, it's, too, it's too good. Like, you have to take that shot. And I think – and here's where I get craving with it. I go with Luke. Go hard. Because on the 20th, you can sit in that room with McConnell and say, do the shrug of, you know, I had to do that. Um, Does anybody disagree? No, and I think there's another reason for it. I think, I don't know what the vibe inside the Democratic Party is going to be, but like, they can't be delighted that they haven't won the Senate. They've lost seats in the House. If he's able to go, yes, you know, if he's able to look like he's a, you know, fighting partisan in uh, in those special elections, that might also quell some internal politics as well. Actually, JP mentioned it. Um, does anybody think Nancy Pelosi actually is given is not given a speaker's gavel uh, when the new Congress meets in January? There's some big rumors about it. Um, it depends how I don't I don't know. Again, it's this sense. I don't know what the internal politics, because we just spent three days waiting for the people, for the voters, for the the, um, the people to get around to actually counting their votes. Um, we don't know yet. Um, but I can I can see a situation in which Pelosi is um, is, is is eased out. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, sorry, actually, JP. Yeah, I, I think that as well. I mean, I think that. That is definitely going to be the situation in terms of, of Nancy Pelosi. I can see that it, it, it feels, and this is where the Democratic Party kind of nearly reads uh, needs to realise. It goes back to something that Rich said earlier on about the kind of reshaping that kind of higher tier. And if anything, I think it, it comes back to a point also raised earlier on about the kind of lack of kind of governing experience within candidates that they had here. That actually, this is a process that they need to start on. If if nothing else, I mean, Republicans always have these kind of diligent plans that they kind of religiously stick through to. And this is what they've done. I mean, we talk about McConnell. McConnell's goals in the, in the Senate, you know, was effectively to block the Obama agenda, push through as many ac activist judges as he could do, and then um, and Supreme Court justices. And he's he's been in successful in that. He will... And from his perspective and his viewpoint, he looks at that as the most successful um, thing he can do, which kind of takes me away from the original question that you were asking. Yeah, does he go? Does he go hard in Georgia? I think he has to. I think he'll do it in the way where he acts like the unity candidate in Washington, whilst at the same time, the thing. And this is one of the kind of like kind of um, hidden gems of of the twenty eighteen midterms. Even though the Stacey Abrams didn't win the governor's race against Brian Kemp. What she has done in terms of um, the kind of voter mobilization and the ground game, I can't think of the organization she set up. And the actual kind of model that that sets up then for other states, it, they're going to have that in place and they should have the voter registration in place as well. And the voters of, I mean, and we're saying this now at time of recording, there's like less than, I think it's like 9,000 votes between Trump and Biden in Georgia. Um, 
And if that comes round, like, I mean, that in and of itself, if you're a if you're a Democratic voter, a first time Democratic voter, I don't know, in an Atlanta suburb and you're seeing the effect that your vote has had in a kind of national like context, I can see that being incredibly energizing. And then you've got the rock star element and that rock star element is going to be there if you take out Trump. Like, if you're thinking about those kind of traditional rallies and they're like, who is that figurehead going to be? Then you get into whether or not Trump's going to be there, which was an earlier question. And I don't know if he is going to be able to be there. So, so we know what you think about Georgia, Rich, but do you think Nancy Pelosi survives? I think so. I think McConnell should go. I'm yeah. Schumer. Schumer. <laughs> Schumer should go. Yeah. yeah, I think McConnell should go. Hey, McConnell, I'm almost done. Yeah. <laughs> We're almost done. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think Schumer should go. I think Mc, I think uh, McConnell obviously I think should go. But uh, in terms of Pelosi, I think while she has her foibles, again she is a pol- they need politicians. They need people to make those connections because what was lost in all of this was there were very success that were dropped that McConnell never even countenanced. And that is the issue. If you need to put that pressure on them, if you never looked at this and you're saying the American people need these things and you decided to put in a Supreme Court justice before you got people food, now it's on you, buddy, because it's turned around and this lame duck session ain't going to save you. I think that's going to be big. And I think Stacey Abrams and I think JP, I'm look, I was looking it up as well. Uh, it is. Uh, I can't remember it. I had it and I lost it. The name she had for for the group. Uh mm. But yeah, so but that is the issue, and I and I think going in, it's going to take to be honest, because uh, uh, this is something that kind of goes along with what you're saying. There is a Twitter push for Pelosi to go, but there isn't a real politic push for Pelosi to go. Oh, that we're fine. And, and <laughs> it's, 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 it's because when you think about it, JP just mentioned, and that made I, I in of course across the pond here i just got a tweet from a friend of mine who i'm doing another podcast with it at eight o'clock uh about some of this stuff but the one thing he talked about living in georgia was remembering all of the folks after bernie didn't get the nomination calling stacy abrams a corporate shill democrat and this is the woman that just got them georgia and mm-hmm. so those are the folks that are on twitter those are the folks that are on the ground doing the work and so they need those folks front and center to work with him to figure out what's wrong. They need to talk to the squad. They need to talk to the younger members and see where that, because it's as it is age. I think a lot of people get very ageist on Twitter and they say, you're old, you don't. But a lot of times in politics, especially American politics, I've learned if you're old, that means you're there for a reason. Like as much as I might've had some issues with Bernie, you can't be there for 30 some odd years and not know how to talk to people. Mm. No, I mean, my um, tickets on Georgia, I think he will go for it, although I think he will, he won't be at the forefront uh, for the reason a lot of people have said. I think I think it was Harry Truman in '46 run against a do nothing Congress. I, I wonder if that's the message um, Biden runs against. I think Josh Barrow of New York Magazine made a good point of how does Trump's craziness over the next ten weeks interact with the Georgia runoff elections? If Trump's out there saying "fuck you, America," no stimulus for you. Does that does that actually rustle up some votes in Georgia for the Democrats? So it's a long shot. It's a real long shot. But, you know, who knows? Crazier things have happened. Um, in terms of Pelosi, 
look, I, I, think, I think the interesting question would be, maybe she quits herself because like the dream she had being speaker in a kind of democratic uh, restoration has got, I mean, it's going to be two hard years of, you know, close folks of the house, whatever, you no, know, even if it's a 50-50 setting, which is the best case scenario, house bills being watered down by the more conservative upper house. I mean, she is really old. I mean, surely she has better things to do than to do that. And whilst I do appreciate Richard's points about you need experienced people, et cetera, et cetera, the reality is Pelosi's record's not good. Um, she is, you know, it is kind of, you know, give an example for Rich and JP, is kind, kind of like Arsene Wenger, you know, being manager, you know, in the mid-tens mid due to what he did in the mid-noughties. You know, Nancy Pelosi has won three out of what? The, so it's three out of six... She's six or seven cycles she's running, or four out of six or seven. One of those wins has a big asterisk because she actually lost seats in it in a very favorable environment. Um, I, I, I think the Democrats should be able to do better. And if you're going to start, and the thing, the thing with Pelosi as well is, it's like, it's a weird one where I think the left of the Democratic Party can do better. But I think the right can do as well. Now, I think she, unless she decides to go, like set down. I think she will stay because the energy and the membership is from the left, but the people in the house that could get rid of her are on the right. Mm. There isn't actually a left wing candidate to replace Nancy Pelosi as speaker. You know, everybody who's a plausible candidate is to her right. I mean, no, when she was, when she got the minority leadership position in two thousand and four, she was a left wing insurgent. And I absolutely hope, I agree with Rich, that Schumer should go. And I hope AOC primaries him in, uh, uh, in two years' time. Because AOC is too good a politician to be a backbench House member. Um, and she's so good at the kind of committee stuff as well. She should be New York's uh, senator, or one of New York's senators. Anyway, we are running out of time, so we're going to quickly do predictions, and then we're going to have one final wrestling question. So, Simon, your prediction? Prediction? Sorry, my prediction of... Anything. Your final prediction. Um, My final prediction is that I think... I'm actually going to be uncharacteristically... Slightly dull and a bit optimistic. I think that we're going to find. I think Biden will cross to two seventy in the next twenty four hours. And actually, I think that Trump will discover quite how small the, his loyalists really are. It's basically people who, at some point, married one of his children and Rory Giuliani. Really like to, um, and I think in the end. The GOP establishment in the House and the Senate won't give him any kind of support for his ranting. So I think it will just be basically a man shouting on Twitter while sitting in an office. Mm. Uh, JP? Uh, <coughs> what do I think in terms of prediction? I'm going to be... Uh, what do I think is going to happen? Um, 
I don't think the GOP is going to do any kind of autopsy from this. So my worry is, is that if I'm predicting anything, it's probably going to be that there is that kind of gridlock. It's how the stimulus package gets through, because even Trump was wanting, was willing to kind of put in more into that than what the um, Senate Republicans were, certainly. And that is going to be the issue. And it comes back to, again, a, a point Rich raised earlier about, you know, there, there are people out there who are hungry. I, I, I think if I'm going to predict... I'm going to say that the Democrats, it sounds crazy, get their act together and win both Senate seats in Georgia. That's a big I, I think they've, they've awoken something in the South that has been a long time coming. And I think the glittery, shiny prize is always thought to be Texas. And in fact, it is, it's George Way. It's that gateway southern state, not the hard stuff of Texas if I can give it some sort of heroin-based analogy. <laughs> uh, Rich? Yeah, I think my prediction is uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, whinging from the side of the GOP, uh, from Trump particularly. But by the time that runoff happens, I do think both seats will happen. And I think that will make a cowed McConnell a lot easier to work with because you then have the specter of eliminating the filibuster and everything else that uh, some of the harder left Dems want, and some people don't necessarily can think about the long-term implications of, but I completely understand why they're as excited for it in some of the other plans as possible. Yeah, I mean, my, we were mentioning again, uh, Luke's prediction was Doug Jones for, for, the, for the DOJ, which I think is right. I mean, I think, I think my prediction is, I think Biden will do well. I, I, think, I, think, I think the thing with Biden will be controlling his temper, um, which has been an issue in a path in his past political career, but I think Biden will do well, and I do think I think Biden's a more part is the most party institutionalist um, uh, president the Democrats have had since LBJ. I think that their their presidents have tended to be outsiders, and I think he will have an eye on those midterms, and I and I think the Democrats. Will do. Will not have the big losses that Obama had. I think that has became a narrative that incumbents always have these big losses in their first midterms. It's not actually true. Um, you know, Clinton had them, but that was this historic 40, 50 year Democratic permanent majority in the House being uh, dismantled finally. But George W. Bush actually gained seats in both houses in the midterms. And, you know, Obama actually gained seats in the Senate in the midterm. Well, no, he lost seats in the Senate. Well, he lost some seats in the Senate, but he gained some as well. But he did not lose control of the Senate. And the backlash in the House was partially due to, to a racist backlash from a lot of white Southerners and white Westerners to the fact that they had a black president. So I, I, th I think people are too pessimistic about the 2022 midterms. But I don't know. We say goodbye to Simon, unless he wants to hear us talk about wrestling. No, no, that, that, that's great. Um, final. Oh, Simon, say goodbye, Simon. Yes, yeah, so farewell, um, chaps. It was lovely, lovely, to, lovely to spend the evening with you. Um, I will let you let you get on to the stuff. You know, you you, you know the meat and drink, what you actually like to talk about. But it's been a, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> I hope it happens again sometime in the future. Thank you, Simon. Absolute pleasure. Thank Apologies you, for the kettle. I, I I haven't forgiven you, obviously. <laughs> 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 All right, lads. Uh, uh, have, have a good evening. You too. Cheers. Bye. Oh.
Simon's not listened to our wrestling podcast if he thinks we want to let we want to talk about wrestling. <laughs> but yes, very quickly because we it is getting late in the UK and Rich has another podcast to get ready for and family duties as well, which I can see with increasing frequency on the video. But obviously, the glory was, days of having an eight-year-old. Then you get sick. You you'll get sulky teenager before you know it, Rich. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I give you. Uh, I was uh, my uh, my ex-wife called me so I could I could speak to my son, and um, I, I I had to turn the. I was listening to like the New Statesman podcast, so I had to quickly turn it off. And he was like, "Are you in a restaurant, Dad? Are you in a restaurant?" I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. I'm just listening to a podcast." And I was like, "Oh, what was the podcast of?" Oh, I was like, "Oh, it's the American elections." I'm like, well, what's that? It's like, oh, it's it's who becomes the next American president. And they, like, oh, you mean George Washington? I do you know why my four-year-old son knows who George Washington is because he's been a character in Teen Titans Go. Yes. Go. <laughs> but anyway, very quickly, um, I, I did want to do my uh, "I told you so" dance, not to you guys, obviously, because you guys know how the physical system works, but like. Um, there's a lot of talk from Andrew Yang, I think it'd be fair to say, mm. about how like a hard rain was coming for WWE and UFC. And I think before we go on to the more fun stuff, can we just I think can I think we can we all agree that that hard rain is not coming? Uh Rich? Yeah, I think at most there's gonna be stuff set up kind of like RPW has with equity baseline things for the independence, but he's not gonna be able to touch it because I think honestly. WWE, if they get any sort of pushback from uh, outside of maybe someone putting pressure so they can get off of people's Twitch and streams, they're going to just cry poor and fire more people. There is mm-hmm. No one's ever going to go union because there's always a stooge. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I'm just very practical about that. And despite his conversation with Jericho, I, I did not see the, the hard, even with a blue wave, like a tsunami, I didn't see that happening. JP? I completely, I completely agree. I, I just can't see it happening. Certainly, well, not now in this environment, but I don't think it's one of the things where it's hard to see where the political willpower is in in, in order for this to happen. So it sounds lovely to us. It's at that point you kind of realise that we're part of that bubble and that actually I'd love this to happen, but there's, you know, well, I'd, lo- I'd love lots of things to happen within wrestling, none of which do actually happen. So yeah. it's, it's the story of my fandom. I mean, I think there's two points there. So first of all, I mean, the thing I always said was like, look, you know, you got to remember, if the Democrats got like 52, they'd have been having an amazing night. I mean, the the, the high point of their aspirations was like 53. Mm. And so you got, we got two, in that case, we'd have two Democratic senators from Nevada, two Democratic senators from Connecticut, they ain't going to do anything to hurt the UFC or WWE. And like, this is not a hypothetical. You know, I mean, Dana White had this weird thing where he pretended he never met Joe Biden. They, they were touting Joe Biden in 2010 about how close they were. They had, no, they had Dana White campaign for Harry Reid's election. You know, mm-hmm. they're juiced in to the political machine in Nevada and those Democratic senators aren't going to say boo to the goose to the UFC. In Connecticut, the most corru- one of the most corrupt things I've ever seen, and there's been a lot this past four years, 
was when you had the two Democratic senators who had both beaten Linda McMahon to get elected, spoke in favor of her nomination, even though there was no meaningful divestment from WWE, even though there was a clear conflict of interest between WWE and her role in a small business administration, even though she was a very big donor to the Republican Party, because Connecticut, no, WWE is one of the biggest employees in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is, I want to ask you this, Rich. I just think the rest of the media has massively overrated how important a figure Andrew Yang is. Like, yes, he ran well in the primaries, but he did actually get thumped in most states he stood in. He dropped out quickly, and there's no inclination that the Biden camp like him. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's a guy who's going to just be, he's, he's, he's furniture. Yeah. If this was Bernie, this would have been different because him, Bernie Sanders and Biden have been friends. And I think, again, we didn't get a chance to talk with the collective, but I think from a wrestling standpoint, this is the difference between Vince McMahon talking with, uh, you know, like Pat, Pat. Um, oh, my God. How am I forgetting? names? Uh-huh. Forgive me. Yeah. Pat Patterson versus talking to Eric Bischoff. Like there's going to be a relationship. There's levels to it. And so when you have Yang, he's definitely the Bischoff in that situation. He's going to tolerate him. Maybe more Jim Smallman. (laughs) (laughs) And he's been so publicly auditioning. I mean, I I wonder in this case, is he not going to be, he's going to be on CNN. He's going to be a CNN fixture for a while. So I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. no, All right. The Jim Smallman thing is kind of like, oh, my God. Yeah, of course. I, when you said he's been, I was like, he shouldn't need to campaign. He already got the job. I was like, oh, and then I heard the whole. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I could see Andrew Yang as a CNN commentator. Yeah, I think that's yeah. his. Uh, I, I look. I mean, it's not against anything as Andrew Yang. You, you try and keep your name out. There's this niche that you can get a lot of attention for. But I think a lot of wrestling commentators, and actually, the bigger thing, and this is one of the things, uh, and this is a very wonky point. And uh, feel free to shout at me, Rich, if you disagree. But like, I really think people focus too much on this independent contract versus employer issue. Like, yes, if you had a functioning industrial relations board, it'd be a big deal, but you don't. The big issue is how much of the pie will WWE, UFC give their performers? And the reality is, it's like, even if you got the law change where they all of a sudden became independent contractors, you know, WWE wrestlers became employees. What would then happen is WWE go, okay, well, here's your pension. Here's your healthcare plan. Here's your road expenses. Here's your hotels. By the way, this, we've worked this out, that costs, that, that is equivalent to about 20% of your wages. So we're cutting your wages by 20%. And if you don't like it, bite me. And, and I, I've got into a, a discussion about this with Trevor Dane. And he was like, well, they wouldn't be able to fire him. But we fired a lot of employees just this year. I mean, they fired loads of their road agents. Mm. So I think I do the, the kind of, I get why people are very focused on the benefits issue. And I think it is important. And I think there are, particularly for UFC, actually, I think there are, there are arguments it's better to give fighters a pension than give them money up front because it means they've got some security for their old age. They don't 
piss all their money away. But it's not going to give them more money because a whole point of things like the uh, uh, Cadillac tax in Obamacare is the more an employer spends on your health care insurance, the less they pay you in wages. But anyway, the other question, this is a final question. How big a dick is Chris Jericho? JP. Um, he is someone who clearly is one of the Republicans for whom, above all else, you vote to protect your tax band. <laughs> and he probably heard Joe Biden saying that, you know, that anyone under getting under 400k a year won't pay a dime more in tax. He thought, well, that's clearly not me because I'm on quite a big deal here. It's disappointing, surprising. No, um, he's always kind of entertained that. I mean, I put up a point there the other day. We said, I'm not a political person and I hate that stuff. That's the stuff that makes me angry um, because I look at outside. If I go outside my balcony, the streetlights are politics. The pavements are there as part of politics. Even where things are planted is all part of political decisions. Like life is politics, whether or not you like it or whether or not you find it interesting is kind of by the by. It's happening. Whether and it's whether or not you choose to engage with it and try and understand it, I think, yeah, it's it, it's the kind of he is the kind of, and I know you said this earlier on, Rich, to kind of really paraphrase your point, it's the idea. What's really disappointing is there's so much of the overt worst aspects of the Trump era are so so obvious, and for someone who is on social media as well, the idea you cannot be unaware. It's 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 the idea that. Racism isn't a deal breaker for him. You may tut tut stuff publicly. It's not a deal breaker. And in some ways, if you're donating that money, to paraphrase Chris Rock and the, the kind of bullets routine, there's no innocent bystanders. If you're giving $3,000 to the Trump campaign, you know what you're doing. So if this means he gets blowback for it, and it won't necessarily, he won't, I don't think, get get blowback for it to be honest with you because i think these things exist on the kind of the twitter bubble and i don't think it'll necessarily matter and fans like us who've you know going back all those years have thought about what were wrestlers politics like in the 80s i shudder <laughs> to think uh, like i really do uh, like i think back to i want to say dick murdoch i could be completely wrong yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you know you're going back to that and you're thinking okay all right He's not in that category, but, I, you know, how him doing it, is he is he an arsehole? I mean, I asked my Grapple Spotlight co-host, Benno, when he saw him at the hotel for Love of Wrestling, and he was in a bar, and there was just lots of 80s and 90s wrestlers around them, and he's texting me what they're all up to, and it's like, wow, okay. Um, but, yeah. We really should have gone to that, shouldn't we? Like, yeah. We really screwed a pooch by not going to that. It's one of my bigger regrets in wrestling. It really is. <laughs> I went to Fight Club Pro rather than to hang out Raider tonight. Hey, well. the Steiners were due to come over the one pre-COVID. That was something I've been dreaming about since I was like 10 years old. So, uh, Rich, uh, what do you think about Chris Jericho? Well, I think he's cashed in his uh, lovable ignorance in a way that was very public. And JP brought it up. I mean, the money. You can't say I'm not very political when you I, I don't give a thousand dollars to something I'm not aware of. Mm. I don't move to Florida to avoid income tax, state income tax. If, if I'm unaware of the way the American system works, grifter's going to grift. 
if anything, as I told a friend of mine here, uh, it only confirmed that Kevin Nash was right 25 years ago and the vanilla midgets were trash. Uh, <laughs> except for the Dean Linko. I love Dean. I love me some Dean. But given I, – I, I love JP. Like, honestly, I love talking to both of you guys because as an American, there's a lot of times where I deal with some of my white friends here in the States, and they don't understand politics is everywhere. Mm. You guys do. And so when I see – the first thing that jumps to my mind is when I see uh, Vicky, if Eddie was alive, it would have broken my heart to see him as a Texan for Trump. Mm. It probably would have happened. Yeah. It, it would have been. Not that I'm wishing that he was died to prevent that, but it's like that's the first thing that popped in my head because I see the way she talked. That isn't something that he would have been now, tut tut, honey. No, he would have been right there, and that mm. would have completely put him in the Benoit pile and just. I can't think about you anymore. And I mean, I think I think the thing, um, just that difference. Before I get back onto the question about wrestling, the thing that I think the difference between British and American politics is we expect our politicians to do things mm-hmm. because we don't have separation of powers. We no, we don't have a powerful upper house. We don't have division between the um, the executive and the lower house. You know, you have to do stuff. And it's quite clear um, when our government doesn't do things. Like, I used to be, I used to believe in the American system and want it to be, like, in a modified form brought to Britain. And actually, there's a really good book uh, by a Guardian journalist called Jonathan Freeland called Bring the Revolution Home, where he talks about how actually the American Revolution was the revolution that should have happened in England. Um, and obviously, you know, the president is basically the then powers of the English king transposed into what they thought was the most democratic system they could think of at the time. But like we know, JP will know this as well, like we went through two years of hell with Brexit where we had a... Two years? Well, the 2017-2019 period where you just had a government that was elected to do a certain thing they couldn't do without getting the opposition to mm. help them. And it's like, well, no. Why do the opposition need to help them? They're the opposition. That's their job. And the, the thing with American politics, it's not polarized. It's constipated. It's all these arguments that America can never get beyond because you have to have your opponents help you do things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so no, that's a bit of a side rant. But anyway, we've, we've trashed Jericho. I agree. You know, it's classic. You know, I think he actually did go to college, but obviously he's a non-college uh, profession. He's rich. Of course, he's a Republican. Of course, he's moved to the South. I think if he was smart, he'd be trying to put the word about with some of these right-wing networks and get a deal. Because I could see Chris Jericho as like a uh, sleazy Tucker Carlson clone. I, I mm. think he could do quite well with that. Final question. Which wrestler has most surprised, surprised you on the positive side? And you can't, we can't all say Kevin Nash. I'll Is say Hank. Uh, sorry, Rich, you first. No, no I'm going to let you go first because I'm going to defer to you, sir. Okay, um, I was going to go Hangman Page. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I mean, just in terms of the, like, the sheer contribution as well. I mean, I was speaking to a former colleague of Grapple Spotlight who was saying, well, he was a former primary school teacher, wasn't he? He was an elementary school teacher. And I think it just made me think, well, of course, there's a basic kind of obvious grounding there um, in there as well. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I would say that I'm trying to think of wrestlers who did really good stuff with the kind of get out the vote campaigns if there was um, many who did outside of sort of the Rock and Dave Batista, from what I saw, I think it's unfortunately for WWE wrestlers. And I know you brought up earlier on about the SmackDown, your vote not being there. Very, very clear. It was like, right, we don't want anything political on your timelines at all about this. And you go nowhere near because there's several people I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Big E, to be honest with you. I'm thinking of like a Florida man who would want to be commentating on the situation on the ground in Florida and kind of thinks, if I do this, though, the the various repercussions and, and whatnot and, and about it probably work its way onto him. And actually, can we just say that's a big issue in America generally? Like you had you now workplaces saying if Biden wins, it's redundancies. If Trump wins, it's bonuses all round. I mean, the level of coercion in a lot of working class communities by the bosses is quite scary. I'm assuming um, my, my pillow is probably doing the same thing as well. Uh, Rich? Yeah. My I was going to say, JP had a good one with uh, Hangman, especially given the fact that he's surrounded by so many people that kind of espouse that GOP mindset, if not publicly, privately. Mm. And uh, that's that was very interesting. Uh, I'll give credit also to my girl from uh, Pittsburgh, Britt, because she did a pretty good job for herself. And she did not uh, play the game of I'm happy to have voted. She did the uh, yield hashtag and she'd been doing her work like phone banking and stuff from what I've been told. So that's that's awesome for her. And again, dentist. This isn't a person that's going to be seeing this is just I need to bank money even though she's in $150,000 of debt from dental school. like, and, and that's the thing that always gets to me with this stuff. It's it's like, what do you do for me? And you mentioned Kevin Nash is out. I'm not going to mention Kevin Nash. Dave Bautista. Yeah. He has been an absolute juggernaut when it comes to confronting directly and being what we call anti-racist. Like, he has not taken a seat. He has done stuff that I'm very proud that he was able to, he was do, able to do the stuff that Titus O'Neil couldn't. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, I think, I mean, uh, I think Batista's been great. Uh, Kevin, you mentioned Kevin Nash. I think Kevin Nash has been great. I think he's when hasn't he been? He, 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 <laughs> I mean, I think Troy was pointing out that he was doing all this like LGBT plus mm. activism and like quite a long time ago. Um, um, so I think uh, Nash is cool. Um, uh, I want to mention Foley. Foley's a known liberal, but mm. I, don't, I think he's been particularly outspoken this time. But I also want to men mention him because he did like her, uh, you know, encourage to go out and vote. He also did a video about ignore the president. He's talking nonsense. And you know when you get like the like what like what you guys are doing now, you get a hard um, kind of camera or laptop uh, ca uh, camera on your face. It's when you realise the dude has one ear. Mm -hmm. like you forget it when he's in a ring with WWE presentation and you're always catching him from the side. But when he's looking at you, profile, he's got a really big ear on the right side of his face. And then you're like, where's the other fucking ear? Mm -hmm. 
but actually, I would say the one I think that most struck me, and I said it on Deep Dive, not a wrestler, but in the wrestling business, would be people like Dave Meltzer, Wade Keller, which are people mm. I've paid money for, you know, many years. So I don't pay, I don't actually, technically, I don't pay even at the moment, but you know, I've paid both of them a lot of money at the time over the past decade. And, you know, you can tell they're intelligent guys, you can tell they have political opinions, but they don't bring them into the, into the podcast. Mm. It'd be the most, the biggest issues, like Bin Laden dying, they kind of express their opinion. But as the course of this election has gone on, they have became more and more outspoken about, you know, mm. how much they hate Trump. And that's, that's what you need. You need these, you know, people to come out and say, you know, you know, this is not right, you know, please, you know, vote the right way uh, when you get the chance to. This wasn't an election that you could 50-50 book. You, <laughs> had to, you, had to, you had to book a clean, you had to book a decisive clean finish, so you had to go somewhere. This is, <laughs> this is CM Punk, Punk Ryback in the hell of the cell. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you go, why have we done this? You say that. But, you know, if you actually think about it, Trump had a long winning streak. No, sorry. Biden had a long winning streak in terms of the uh, his elections in Delaware and then the Obama uh, victories as vice president. Trump was the incumbent. And, you know, all those late votes that were stuffed into ballots by Antifata, they're the shield. They are. So actually, it's exactly like CM Punk versus Ryback, um, except the challenger won. But uh, yeah. no, it can't, it can't be exactly right. Anyway, it has been a pleasure. We have to let people go because we have gone way of our cues. I said I had not achieved a miracle of sticking to two hours. But uh, any final thoughts and final plugs from you two fine gents? Okay, so for me, I would say look forward to part three at some point of my deep dive uh, marathon series with Will. If you thought uh, the EastEnders took a while, just <laughs> wait to go to the two of us. Uh, we're going to be talking eventually about the collective, but we're probably going to be talking about some election fallout stuff. We'll be talking about uh, uh, some more stuff in Brit Res, including uh, what I saw on Twitter between uh, Will and I think it was Alan. Yeah, in Alan terms of I should yeah. Hey, I he he said a snarky comment to me, and rather than responding good humor, I told him to go fuck himself, and that was a mistake. I should have taken <laughs> Alan. It can be snarky at times, and he's a friend, and I should have taken a good humor. So my bad. Well, I was I wasn't gonna go to that part, but I was gonna say the very the debate you guys were having was a really good one. I wanted to talk about, which was giving an audience the opportunity to see the greatness that was Walter and Ilya mm. it, during that NXT portion. Because while I appreciate the uh, twenty minutes of the new stable that is going on there, you could have fit that match in quite snugly and still done that without, say, the smashing of the tank. <laughs> I, I think NXT, well, we'll talk about it on uh, Saturday, but the NXT, yes. Raw, I'm not sure about, but we will talk about that. But, yeah, you can catch me and Rich at the uh, Pro Wrestling Torch. And uh, JP? You can find me on Twitter at JPJP, three E's. Uh, you can find me every either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, depending on what's going on. Um, although this week we're going to be live on Sunday, potentially with video on Grapple Spotlight. It'll be uh, myself, 
Benno, Grapple Gareth and Steph Chase um, looking at Power Struggle and uh, all uh, full gear, isn't it? I was going to say all out there. Oh, blimey. Um, we've also had, as you two have been fantastic guests on the roundtables in the past, we've got another one of those out at the moment, which is about uh, sort of a roundup of the G1 Climax and sort of where New Japan are looking at in the next year. And that was with, again, myself and Benno, who was making his roundtable debut. Um, we had Sarah Flan. Uh, we also had um, Sarah and Alan Farrell on there as well, which was, uh, it was great. Yeah, absolutely loved doing that. So we have those at the moment. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's me for all plugs. Also, yeah, download Grapple, download the app. Okay. I know that Walter Ilya, from when we were recording on there, I think it was like most people were going up to sort of 4.7 range for it. So if ever there was an idea of, look, here's a match you need to go out of your way and watch. Um, and it's probably like a broken clock being right twice a day that there's something compelling on NXT UK. So, uh. <laughs> Well, thank you again, guys. And not these two fine gentlemen, but me, Luke and Simon, will talk to you again in a while.